Hey guys and gals, Cable here, and this week's podcast is brought to you by the place that you need to be hanging out. Of course, I'm talking about the new Go Wild app. It's a social media platform for hunters and anglers created by hunters and anglers. That's right. No negativity. You're not going to find anti-hunters, anti-Second Amendment, anti-American people on Go Wild. Just folks like you and I who are passionate about our way of life and the great outdoors. And did I mention it's free, by the way? Yeah. So download Go Wild on your smartphone and join in the conversation. It's a great place to not only share trophy photos, but ask questions related to hunting and fishing. The Go Wild community is always happy to help out a fellow outdoorsman or woman. Uh, plus, you can share recipes, log time, listening to your favorite podcast. And, and Go Wild usually has some kind of kick-ass giveaway that they're doing as well. Check it out. It's the Go Wild app, and I will see you over there. September in the Rockies, the bull elk bugles ring. Their sounds fill the canyons, it's like they're trying to sing. Fall winds blow in winter, and the snow's falling deep. It's time of Of course, it had to be Rich Fire kicking things off for us on the Lone Star Outdoors Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith here with you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for tuning in today. It is a pleasure to be talking, hunting, fishing, the great outdoors and all that implies. Uh, thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well, our longtime presenting sponsors, as we've got uh, a great show lined up for you, especially if, if you're someone who enjoys our public lands. We are celebrating Public Lands Month, and there's no better way to do that than with an elk recap episode one of my longtime buddies and I headed into the New Mexico wilderness for a public land do-it-yourself archery elk hunt last week, and uh, we'll let you know whether we found success, and whether we found success or not, we certainly found trials and tribulations that you'll only find in the mountains, guarantee you that. So uh, we'll get into our gear, the weather, where we decided to camp, um, <laughs> injuries, food, I mean, all that stuff. And, uh, and ultimately, the sacrifices that uh, not only Chisholm and I made on this hunt or to make this thing happen, but also our, our families, you know. Uh, we've both got kids. I imagine many of y'all out there do as well. And, and so to say, hey, uh, honey, I'm, I'm heading into the mountains for eight days, ten days. Hey, good luck with the kids. I mean, that's a big sacrifice uh, a hardship that we put on our families as well. And, and those things weigh heavy on your mind when you're up there in the mountains, uh, when you're sitting under a pine tree and it's pouring down rain. And sometimes you really wish, man, I, I'd rather be uh, anywhere else but right here freezing my ass off <laughs> on this mountain. So uh, we'll get into all that coming up on today's show. So you know what to do. Pull up that stool a little closer to the campfire. And... Uh, Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old thermos. You know, the one that's still got mud caked on it from the 2012 duck season. If it's like mine anyway. Uh, I know mine's pretty filthy. But, and, and don't clean it, by the way. Don't make the mistake of cleaning that thing out. Those, uh, those old coffee grounds build character. So uh, pour yourself another cup because we're ready to rock and roll. Uh, I pretty much already told you what's going to be on the show. So let's do this. Let's have a really quick intro segment this week. Uh, and just go ahead and, and take care of a couple other things 
One being our September photo contest. We've got the All Seasons Feeders Lone Star Outdoors Show Edition Fire Pit. It comes with a grill as well. This is perfect for deer camp. I've got one on uh, each of my leases. And after uh, a long day in the woods, eh, me and the fellows, we like to sit around, have a cold Lone Star, put our feet up around the fire, and and, uh, just shoot the breeze. I know that's probably describing most of your deer camps as well, but you might not have the uh, all-seasons fire pit. So here's your chance to win one. Email your best hunting, fishing, or outdoor photo to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com, and we will get you entered into this month's contest. And then our monthly winners from 2018 will square off once again for the chance to hunt Axis Deer or Black Buck with me down at Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas this spring. So, another great grand prize package brought to you by Coons Canyon Ranch. Let's do uh, let's do a quick giveaway with early teal season here. How about a... Uh, I've got the finisher. It's from Adrenaline. And uh, y'all have probably heard the interview we did with Dave Maestas, the owner of uh, the finisher and inventor of it. It's basically a device that goes on your lanyard. And it's really just a tool to quickly and humanely dispatch any uh, waterfowl, uh, or upland game as well. Even I've seen people kill turkeys with it, uh, but you just insert it into the soft spot right there behind the uh, the animals, basically their brain, and it dispatches them nice and clean. So we've got the finisher. We'll give one of those away, and we'll throw in a Lone Star beer camo cap as well. How about that? Uh, email the word finisher. That's finisher to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com. And we'll get you entered to win this week's giveaway. Uh, We will be right back with my good buddy Chisholm Cook. And we'll begin to peel back the layers of our New Mexico public land archery elk hunt. You're listening to the elk edition of the Lone Star Outdoor Show. The mountains win again. Plateau Land and Wildlife is hosting free Get Wildlife Happy Hours near you through October 29th. If you are a landowner in ag, visit PlateauWildlife.com or call 866-256-2935 for reservations. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Well, Cable, there's no better way to cool off than fishing with Captain Len. The speckled trout run is so hot, and the prices are not. We're also catching redfish, black drum, flounder, and even snapper. All your gear is provided, fish cleaned, and the whole ball of wax. All you need is a camera and a smile. Just ask Cable. That's right. Captain Lynn is a longtime friend of our show. He fishes all the way from Corpus Christi Bay up to Baffin. Visit CaptainLynnFishing.com today. Book your trip and tell him you heard about it here for special rates. The trail of smoke curls through the trees. Fire down low, marine no breeze. Just cotton mass and the copper heads and for some strange reason I fit in You can say I don't know the way by home Cable Smith, welcome everybody back to the Lone Star Outdoor Show Powered, of course, by Dallas Safari Club uh, Thanks for being here today It is 
Great to be talking outdoors with you. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well. Uh, man, one of my favorite things to do in the entire world is chase bugling bulls during the rut with my bow. And uh, last week I had the chance to go to New Mexico and a unit that I have now hunted elk in three times. It's a it's a draw only state, so you know your odds of getting drawn. Not that great, but I've had good luck there. I think I've, in the last seven years, drawn uh, three elk tags and two mule deer tags, and I've actually harvested two elk and a mule deer. So uh, my experience with New Mexico has been great. (laughs) I've talked to a lot of residents, though, and uh, sometimes they get a little ticked because a guy like me from Texas can get drawn with, you know, some kind of frequency, and they might wait six years to get drawn. So I... Don't pretend to know exactly how all of that works, but if you do your research, uh, you can find units that are not as heavily hunted. And uh, so anyway, my good buddy Chisholm Cook, uh, if you follow him on Instagram, his tagline is, or or his uh, handle is Devoted Archer, at Devoted Archer. He was with me in 2015 when I killed my bull in this unit, and then on the last day of the hunt, he was fortunate enough to take a bull as well. And the name Devoted Archer describes him to AT because Chisholm is is a hardcore bow hunter. You know, myself, uh, you just tell me what weapon to bring and, and I'll be there. Uh, but he is all about archery. And um, we're going to really start to dive into this hunt, this experience, really this lifestyle that we've embraced here in just a second. But first, this segment of the show is brought to you by... Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. Whether it's Rocky Mountain elk or uh, African lions in Zimbabwe, DSC is on the forefront of big game conservation. They're passionate about education, hunter's rights, and conservation. I'd love for you to be a part of this great group of people. Uh, For more information, check us out at biggame.org. Well, with that being said, uh, let's go ahead and bring on... uh, one of my oldest buddies, we've actually been good friends ever since college, and our hunting and fishing adventures are many. Uh, some of the best memories of my life, for sure. It's my pleasure to welcome Chisholm Cook back to the show. Thanks, buddy. It's uh, fun, fun to jump on. Yeah. Yes, it is. And, you know, I talk to all kinds of people. Um, very rarely, though, do I just get to have on a, a college buddy who... And we just seems like we've been hunting and fishing together now for 15 years, and uh, we have, yeah. <laughs> and start, you know, started with uh, this casual trips down to the coast to fish with your old man for redfish and trout and red snapper, and next thing you know, uh, I'm whacking some deer I'm not supposed to shoot at at his ranch in South Texas, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm yeah. looking at right now on the wall. He still looks awesome, so uh, tell him thanks for me again. Yeah. Uh, but back in 2015, we both took public land bulls in New Mexico, and we trained our asses off for that hunt. I think I think this time around, though, we kind of did a different. Back in 2015, I did a lot of cardio, and you were doing a lot of weightlifting, and we kind of flipped roles this time. Uh, had some something wrong with my foot that kind of limited my cardio, and anyway, uh, I'm a lot heavier than I was then. Put on some muscle and and uh, didn't put the Lone Star beer down, but. You've been killing it in the gym, so talk a little bit about your your fitness routine and 
And I mean, this is more of a lifestyle for you um, than anything else. It really is. Uh, I mean, that's the way to, to sum it up. I dove into this with you, like you said, you know, it's been, it's been three years ago, but it's been four elk seasons, mm-hmm. right? So in 20, in 2015, uh, I, I had maintained a reasonable level of fitness, you know, in my adult life, um, but didn't have like something to just like anchor me and keep me really focused on a day-to-day basis on making sure I was doing something productive from a physical standpoint. And that was actually a big part of the reason I, you know, that, that first elk hunt was like we talked about that, that year, you know, it was kind of a, it was kind of a foundational thing for a lot of changes I wanted to make in my life, a lot of improvements I wanted to make as a man. And, um, as a Christian, as a father, everything. Yeah. And, yep. And, you know, going up into the mountains for days on end, you know, climbing and, and descending, you know, mountainsides, trying to catch an animal that, that lives up there, um, that you're going to have to be in a certain level of shape. And so, you know, that year I kind of dove into a much more heavy exercise regimen, doing a lot of like, like you said, some some lifting, but but mostly like high-intensity interval training type stuff, hit stuff, CrossFit style stuff. Um, you know, we'd throw a pack on and climb stairs at the gym or just walk around my neighborhood. <clears throat> um, and when we got up there, I didn't feel as good as I expected to, at least not the first couple of days. And, and I think this season showed me there's just a certain level of acclimation that, that you have to expect in that first, like, 48 hours in the mountains. You know, like, when you come from – sea level, which is where I grew up, or even now I live in the hill country, I'm up, I don't know, a thousand foot above sea level. You, you, there's almost nothing you can do to really be prepared wind-wise, um, you know, for the thin oxygen, while also being prepared strength-wise for carrying the loads when it's time to do that. So uh, that first year, I realized I was going to really focus a lot more on the cardio piece going forward. But to your point, Ever since then, I've been 100% committed that one week every September I will be in the mountains somewhere hunting elk. And so my calendar is structured around my year starts like this week. Right. Because we just got, got out of the elk woods. Have you been back to the gym? Uh, I went yesterday. It felt great. <laughs> well, you're beating me because, no, I have not yet. But uh, uh, they told me they cut my workout short because I was wearing flip-flops because of those, those – uh, <laughs> Because of my blisters, and the lady was like, my manager said, you can't work out in flip-flops. So, That's hilarious, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can't go to the gym and open toe shoes. For no, I feel That's like, right. uh, yeah, I feel like I'm okay this week letting my body rest a little bit. Um, certainly had a lot of work to catch up on after being out for a week and, you know, family time to catch up on. Um, my big toe is, is really nasty, um, as you know. I'm really excited really about this as someone who's lost that toenail before. Uh, yeah. you know, just from a, from a friend standpoint, I'm glad your toenail is going to fall off so you can experience a uh, black toe or yeah. what, you know, toe funk, foot funk, whatever you want to call it. Uh, that toenail does not look good. Gee, thanks. Appreciate <laughs> that, buddy. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I'm, uh, so I'm cool this week, sort of laying low, letting my body recuperate. And I, you know, I expect to start working out again next week. And, and what I've done the last two years that I, that work is seeming to be working really well for me again, with elk sort of being the anchor point, it's no longer the only reason I exercise. I exercise now 
because I love to and I, and I kind of have to. And so I sort of structure my year around. I'll do like sort of more traditional bodybuilding type work for the next few months, certainly through the fall and winter, basically through deer season. Um, and then in the spring is when I get really serious after long uh, cardio sessions and, you know, things that are kind of more geared towards preparing you for like elk shape. So that way I'm building my body part of the year and, and you know, building my, my cardio uh, and that combination of strength and cardio and the other sort of half of the year. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like one of those things where, and we've talked about this before, where, and I've did a whole show on uh, guys need to either exercise, have sex, or go hunting or fishing every day. You got to do one of the three, uh, just yeah. to be a man. I mean, it, it, if you don't do one of those three things, you're not gonna. It's not gonna affect you, you know, short term. Um, but you're gonna feel better if you do one of those three things in a day. And if you can do two of them, that's great. If you somehow can manage to do all three. My God, you knocked it out of the park. You're you are a man's man for sure. And you're and you're, and you're probably gonna sleep really well. Oh, <laughs> you knock out down. knock out more than one. Yeah, yeah. no, I, that's you know one of the things that uh, has been great about diving down this rabbit hole the last three years is, uh, yeah, I, I've I've found some influences. We talk about this a lot. Different podcasts I listen to, different uh, outlets of guys who are, have similar passions to us. That you know that sort of they're into the same sorts of things and. Um, you know, whether that's hunting guys, um, or, uh, you know, through those hunting guys, I, I sort of found my way to some other kind of, um, what would you call it? like motivational type guys like Jocko Willink mm-hmm. or, you know, some of, some of these guys who host podcasts, former special forces guys, Navy SEAL guys who basically just hammer into your head every day. Like nothing's impossible. Nothing's as hard as you, you're making it, get your butt up and do it and you'll feel better. Yeah, I mean, you you reach a point where you're right. Like, there may be a day where your body's hurting a little bit. And I I heard this one guy talking once that I wish I could remember what podcast it was or who it was, but he was basically saying, listen, if you're having a day where you're just like, man, I just beat down, I'm worn out, I don't want to go, go that day. And if you feel the next day the same way, then take a day off. And what you'll find more often than not is if you'll hit the gym on that day where everything's creaky and you're tired and you're just not quite right, you'll feel a hundred percent better. You probably flush some like lactic acid out of your system or, or whatever might've been holding you back. And the next day you're fine. Um, and you know, leading up to this year's hunt, I mean, I, I rarely went a day. I don't think I, I bet for six weeks, I didn't go a day without doing some sort of outdoor physical activity, whether it was a quick 30 minute bike ride, you know, or a full like 90 minute, you know, mm-hmm training session on this program I was working on. So, And this program is, here's the funny uh, tidbit, is the program was actually given to you by a, a fitness guy in Austin, Texas, who we met in New Mexico in the mountains in 2015. He was the only other elk hunter we saw. And you were listening to another podcast, and, and Chisholm, unfortunately, had eaten some of those uh, hatch green chilies the day before we <laughs> hiked into the mountains. It didn't go well for the uh, posterior and... Uh, he was laid up one morning. Anyway, uh, this guy was on a podcast saying, yeah, I knew I ran to these guys from Texas, and he told your your uh, unfortunate butt story there. And then you reached Monkey out butt to him. Monkey butt story is what he called it, yeah. He called it what? Monkey butt story. Monkey butt, yeah. And then next thing you know, you guys hook up because you, you heard him on this podcast, and he sends you for free, basically, his entire uh, elk training program. 
Yeah, exactly. So the, just to give the guy world. <laughs> you know, with some recognition and credit, his name is Jake Signs, and he owns a gym in Austin called Atomic Athlete. And he does. He was a special forces guy himself, and he's got these. He's got I don't know fifty different programs for everything from you know working out with a back injury or a knee injury or a shoulder injury to like dedicated like ruck improvement protocols for guys who are going into the mountains or going into the special forces. Um, you know, a, a dedicated like bicep hypertrophy or hy- however you say that word, mm-hmm. uh, you know, arm workout. And then he's, yeah, he's got this, he calls his ultimate predator program. And it was definitely intense. Um, things like I would, you know, throughout the course of 12 weeks build from like dragging a, a tire for 30 minutes to, by the end of it, I was dragging the tire down the road for an hour and five minutes. Uh, and then at the very end of it, you do that and then do legs after that like, you know, like squats and lunges and things like that after having drug a tire for an hour and five minutes or box step-ups, uh, just stepping up on a box with my pack on like 40 pounds for 45 minutes and 50 minutes and 55 minutes and 60 minutes. Um, you know, and then like once a week in there, you do like an upper body strength routine where you do some pull-ups and things like that. And that combined with this year, I got really serious about my diet. I basically cut refined sugar and for a while, refined carbs in general, but I've started eating some like good carbs again, things like oatmeal and quinoa and all that sort of stuff, uh, which I really needed to fuel these particular workouts. Uh, I dropped 12 pounds this year. Um, we went in opposite okay. directions there. So what do you weigh now? <laughs> well, at the moment, I weigh like 168 because uh, I lost five more while we were in the mountains. Yeah, I lost five too. But I had five to lose. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I barely had five to lose, but um, I've gained three back since we've been home. And I think 170 to 175 is going to be my ideal range uh, yeah. with my body type where it is now. And, and I think so, once I start lifting again, I'll swell. In 2015, I went into the mountains weighing 178, and I was running like 25 miles a week, just blowing through it, you know, and was pretty skinny. And this year, I weighed 210. And my, I, I started lifting heavy probably two years ago and uh, put on a lot of muscle. Of course, I didn't cut Lone Star beer or, you know, uh, refine. I went on that carnivore diet for a couple months leading up to it, but I never cut the beer out. So I weighed yeah. almost 210 going into this one. I'll tell you this, though, I never felt stronger. And when it came to hauling that elk out, you know, this was the first time in 10 years that my bulging disc in my back did not act up on a backcountry hunt. So it definitely made a difference, the weight training did. Um, you know, it, that foot injury leading into it was kind of unfortunate on the cardio thing. I I, I had to get a quarter cortisone shot in my foot like seven days before we left. <laughs> so that sucked. Uh, and it really yeah. didn't help that toe. I had some nerve damage in my foot. And uh, anyway, but as far as the strength goes, uh, I felt great. So that was a, a positive for me personally. I probably would like to get down to 195, 190 would be a, a better better for my body anyway. Well, I, I could tell a difference in you from, you know, when we went in 2015 where you had been running so hard. And I've definitely found having switched it up basically each year, like my second year elk hunting, when I went with my old man to Colorado, I did the last month, I would climb stairs with my pack on at a high school football stadium and then run sprints on the football field. Um, you know, as many as like 15, 16, 18, like 50 to 60 yard sprints. And when we got in the mountains that year, I even on day one, I wasn't like sucking wind. I wasn't breathing hard. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so you had done something similar and you were doing like 45 minute hour long jogging sessions back in 15. And so I was always chasing you guys, you and David, who had both taken a more straight cardio approach. But then when it came time to pack bulls, I was, I felt like I was in a lot better condition for that than you guys were Oh yeah. for this year. You know, I was in front of you and I think that was mostly due to your foot. I mean, I know it was right. Your feet, not only your toe, but you got blisters heading into the mountains on day one. Yeah. Good Lord. So you were, yeah. So you were chasing me this year, but then when it came time to move, you know, your bull across the mountain, uh, you looked and you, you, you were much stronger this year than you were on that first hunt for, for that phase. So, um, yeah, uh, there's it, no it, doubt. I feel stronger, feel it, good, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, and then you bring up the back thing, you know, I've got a bad back too. I've had, and this for anybody out there who's suffered a major injury, that thinks that it holds them back. And you had life. surgery on your back twice. I've had yeah. two surgeries on, on the same disc and, um, it'll only hold you back. If you let it, you can find a program, you can find workarounds to certain movements that maybe create issues for you and just listen to your body and, and build it accordingly. But I never feel better as far as my, like right now I've been working today and I've been sitting in a chair and my back is starting to get tight. I feel, I didn't feel that way one time in seven full days in the mountains. Um, and I think it's because I believe it's because your body is moving and articulating and twisting and turning and, you know, you're lifting your knees and you're doing things that are, that your body is really meant to do. I mean, I'm a firm believer. God made us hunters and gatherers. And so if you're out hunting and gathering, you're doing exactly what our body was engineered to do. So, you know, I think between you getting stronger and then spending a week doing exactly what, you know, what we evolved and were designed to do, um, you know, I think it's, yeah, it's cool that, you know, it didn't bother you and, and you do feel that strong and feel better. That's the way I feel too. Like I don't, I don't have any back pain mm. when I'm up there doing that. And you would expect the opposite. Oh yeah. A minimum, and I've had, a minimum and, I've, of, and I've had the opposite. I've gone up there. Yeah. And be like, hey, uh, I really could use a hydrocodone, you know? I mean, like, at the end of the day, like, yeah. my back's killing me. Not one time this year what, did I ever feel like, oh, my bulging disc is, is really uh, making me uncomfortable. But both of us have serious back problems. Like you said, though, uh, it's something you can overcome. And, and back pain is no joke. I mean, it's, it's debilitating. Also, uh, before, like, I guess it was like two weeks before we went, I got one of those uh, decompression tables. And, uh, you know, the, the teeter where you flip upside down, you hang upside down. Well, I think that thing was a big factor as well. So, uh, highly recommend it. You can't, if you've got a bad back or any kind of injury, just say, well, if I go to the mountains for a week, I'll feel better. That's not at all what <laughs> I'm trying to say, right? You like, will feel worse. I've been doing it 15 years the wrong way. Right. So, so. You've got to build the foundation. You've got to have the core strength. You've got to, like you said, not skip back days. Um, I think if you, if you, fa- if you lay that foundation, for whatever it is, whether it's a knee, a shoulder, a back, a neck, of, of working to, to strengthen it, then you'll be surprised what you're capable of in that kind of environment and how good you can feel, you know, if you put the work into it on the front end. 100%. So, 100%. Uh, let's do this. Let's take a break, come back, and actually talk about uh, something a little more exciting, our, uh, our, our gear. Let's talk about our bows, our packs, where we decided to camp and why, all those logistical details. Uh, and then we'll we'll work our way into the uh, actual hunt because it's uh, it was one for the ages. Sounds good. All right, and that segment was brought to you by Pulsar Night Vision and Thermal Imaging Technology. You want to check out the new Pulsar Trail XP50 with internal recording? 
Uh, well, yeah, you do. And you can find it at PulsarNV.com uh, where you will save 20% off your order of any thermal or night vision scope or monoculars. So check it out. Pulsar night vision and thermal imaging. You can find them at PulsarNV.com to order yours today. We'll continue the elk episode after the break. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. But if they ever saw sunrise on a mountain morning, watch those cotton candy clouds go by, then they know why I live beneath these western skies. I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Three Curl Outfitters is now offering guided North Texas quail hunts. Just 30 minutes south of DFW, if you're looking for a quality quail hunt close to home, planning a company outing, or just looking for a place to tune up your dogs, you need to give them a call. Hunts are $2.50 a hunter for a half-day hunt. That includes 15 birds, and you can add extra birds for $8 a piece if you want to give your bird dog just a little more run. You're welcome to bring your own dogs. Otherwise, the guide and dog fee is $1.50 a day for your entire group. That's not per person. Go to 3curl.com or call 214-641-8097 to book your hunt today. the Dirty River Boys off the trail bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show powered by Dallas Safari Club. I'm Cable Smith. Thank you for being here today as we spent a lot of time off the trail on our New Mexico archery elk hunt last week. Uh, I've got my buddy Chisholm Cook here riding shotgun with me today and this is the elk episode. We're going to get into the gear that we took on our archery elk hunt uh, and then some of the logistical decisions that were made during that week in New Mexico. And actually, uh, some of them we made leading into it uh, way in advance. But before we do that, this segment of the show is brought to you by First Light. You know, that's what uh, Chisholm and I, essentially, <laughs> the only thing that we wore uh, in the mountains, it was First Light head to toe. And if you haven't checked out the First Light layering system, it all starts with their Merino Arrowwool base layers. I can't recommend it enough. Because you get the whole gambit of temperatures when you're in the mountains. And it cools you off in the heat of the day. And then it keeps you warm. And, and by the way, dries out, I mean, like with a snap of a finger. And, uh, and it keeps you warm when temperatures start to drop in the evening. So check it out. It's First Light's new Merino Wool Aero Wool lineup. And you can find it at firstlight.com. First Light. Go farther. Stay longer. I will chisholm. Let's jump back into it here, man. Uh, appreciate you sticking around through the break, brother. I want to go ahead and get into our gear, though, at this point. And let's start with our weapons because, uh, you know, that's ultimately what's going to deal that death blow. 
hopefully quickly and humanely. We put in the practice. There's no doubt about that. Anyway, uh, I took an elite tempo, 67-pound draw, uh, Corbin's custom strings. Got a, a Trophy Ridge React 5-pin side on there. I love that side, by the way. You set two of the pins, and then uh, the, the other three are set automatically based on that arc system. That's a great site. And then uh, Slick Trick, 100-grain Viper Trick broadheads, gold tip arrows, and uh, what else? Let's see. Scott Archery Release. Anyway, that's my setup. Oh, and uh, a QAD drop away rest. Uh, that's my setup. Our listeners are familiar with the fact that I shoot elite uh, bows and, and slick trick broadheads. Oh, and here's a little tidbit. Uh, while we were training for this hunt, Chisholm's like, well, uh, what what, uh, what grain arrows are you shooting? And I was like, oh, hell, dude, I don't know. I've been shooting the same gold tips for six or seven years. And Chisholm was like, God, dude, you're so cute with your little bow hunting hobby. <laughs> we're, very, we're very different. You actually, you know, you have a bow press. Uh, when I take my stuff to Cinnamon Creek and say, here, help me work through this, you do it all yourself in the garage. I respect you for that, but we're very different. You're a hardcore bow hunter. Uh, I'm an equal opportunity hunter where you just tell me the weapon and I'll show up and I'll practice with it. Uh, but, I mean, you're definitely a better archer than I am. But so I've, I looked the other day, back to that, uh, I shoot the uh, the Gold Tip Hunters 340s with a GPI 8.9, whatever the hell that means. Uh, and that's what I've always shot. So there you go. Now you know. <laughs> so uh, that's my setup. I'll let you talk about yours. Yeah, uh, okay. I shoot a Hoyt. I've shot four or five different manufacturers over the six or seven years I've been bow hunting. I'm kind of a nut gear. Um, but I'm really happy with the bow I'm shooting right now. Uh, it's the best I've shot um, since I got into the sport. It's got a decent um, combination of uh, well, it's the it's the Hoyt Hyper Hyper Force last year's uh, or this year's new aluminum bow, and it's got an awesome combination of smooth draw cycle, um, good valley or good let off as far as holding it full draw. Um, it's fast, powerful, quiet. Hoyt hasn't always been known for making the super quietest bows. Yeah. I think uh, Matthews and Elite have probably always had them uh, a little bit in that market or that area but um this particular new configuration that they've gone to the last couple of years has gotten a lot quieter and just a few days before we left i was grouping i had shot a three shot group at 60 yards that was like two inches in diameter and i can't do that all the time but it was a good way to to head for the mountains um as far as my arrow setup i shoot uh black eagle spartans um i like a little bit front of sever center i think i'm at like 15 percent that's that means how much weight do you put on the front of the arrow versus the rear or the middle of the arrow. Basically, if you load it a little bit towards the front, there's some theories that you can get a little bit better accuracy, a little bit better uh, a little bit better wind resistance, and, uh, uh-huh. and ultimately penetration. So VPA, I'm sorry, Vantage Point Archery uh, Vented 125s, which I was really comfortable with at, at really long range. Those suckers are forgiving. Yeah. You're grouping at 60. I'm, I'm, I'll tell you right now, I didn't even shoot my boat 60 yards before we went. Uh, just if anyone, if people really want to know the difference between Chisholm and I, I had decided if it wasn't within 50 yards, I wasn't shooting. So it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. I don't care. I mean, well, I, 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 I love bow hunting, but I'm not a fanatic like you are. Uh, I do it every year and, and I find it somewhat therapeutic to go out and shoot a nice group. Uh, but to say that I live and breathe it like you do or 365 days a year uh, would, would not be accurate. Hunting, yes. Bow hunting, no. 
just make sure you're doing everything you can with your equipment. Find a good pro, sh- pro shop. You know, go see those guys. Get yourself dialed in because, you know, you might be finding these errant shots or, or a particular broadhead is problematic, and it's, it's not because of the broadhead's construction or, or you know, the arrow that you're shooting, but you, you've got a slight, slight, tiny, almost imperceptible, you know, issue with, say, your cam timing. Or you might find your bow shooting great, like I did at Archery Country, but I'm can't, or I'm torquing the bow when it come when the shot goes off. And so there's, <clears throat> if you're missing consistently with any one element, get to the root of it, figure it out, because you'll be amazed if you can square that away. All of a sudden, you rock off three arrows and they're stacked on top of each other, and your confidence just goes through the roof. Um, I shoot a Hamsky uh, Hybrid Hunter Rest, which I've been shooting for several years. I like it. It's bomb proof it's easy to adjust got micro adjustment on it and stuff and a tight spot quiver that is really nice bushwhacking through the mountains because it really, i did notice that actually yeah, yeah i've got a wider. elite sent me a quiver it's great a nice quiver whatever your tight spot is like flush up against the bow pretty much yeah it doesn't i noticed while we were up there it doesn't stick out any farther than my spot hog site does Mm-hmm. So that's cool. I mean, you're, you're, you're going to have to stick out somewhat from the right-hand side of your bow if you're a right-hand shooter. And for your, for my quiver to be no deeper or no more sticking out than my sight, you know, I knew it was up there tight, but I hadn't really ever noticed it was that tight. So, yeah. And it stays, not only is it snug up against the bow, but it's snug as it fits, so it doesn't vibrate. Uh, I actually shoot with it all the time. A lot of guys, when they're whitetail hunting, um, will take their quiver off. I don't ever take my quiver off my bow. I shoot with it all the time. I've got my stabilizer set up where uh, I've got a about an eight-inch angled back bar to counterbalance the weight of my quiver in my sight coming off the left-hand side of my bow. And whether I'm practicing or trying to kill a whitetail or trying to kill an elk, I just shoot with it that way all the time. That way, nothing ever changes. I don't accidentally leave my quiver somewhere. I'm always ready with a follow-up shot, et cetera. So. Right on. Okay, so those are our bow setups as far as our packs are concerned. And this is something that's very important as someone who's been – Hardcore into backcountry, first of all, backpacking, and, and then secondly, hunting as well for, God, 17 years now. Uh, I've, I've had good packs and I've had bad ones. And Kufaru makes, in my opinion, one that is as good as it gets. I've got the uh, duplex Timberline, and I'm not sure. I don't remember which model you run, Chisholm. It's a 4,500-ish cubic inch pack. It's really designed for that three- to five-day hunt. So, you know, for this year's hunt, I had it pretty well maxed out when I had all my gear in it. Um, but the thing that's nice about it is it's, you know, it's one of the lighter bags they've made over the last say five years or so. I do, sh- I-, I hunt with their tactical frame, which is their heavy duty frame and then a light bag that I can compress down and, you know, basically get all my gear into. But, um, you know, I think there's three pack companies out there that, that, um, you know, if you're really serious about this and you want to invest some money, for the long haul, they're the ones to go with. Um, and Kafaru is definitely at the top of that list. They're, you know, the United States government, military purchased a lot of their packs, special forces guys especially. Um, they are gearing towards load hauling capabilities, period, yeah. end of the story. Yeah. You know, they make, they have they have some lightweight gear that they, where they can get it as light as they can without sacrificing that durability and that load hauling capacity. Some pack companies focus nothing on nothing but ultralight. When we throw 80 to 100 pounds of hindquarter 
random assortments of meat and like we did bones into a pack like that, uh, it's not going to be <laughs> 80 pounds sucks no matter what, but it's going to suck a lot more if you're, if you're, uh, focused on the lightest pack in the world because something has to get it's basic engineering, right? Oh, absolutely. You want to go, you want to shave a pound off your pack weight. You're going to shave 15 pounds off that pack's capability. Um, but yeah, I mean, the pack I was rocking was just a simple bag and I have a couple of pockets that I can, one thing cool about Kafaro is that they're very modular. They've got different pockets with a PALS webbing system and you can attach a pocket to the back of my pack. You can attach them to the belt. And so I can get organized, even though the bag itself is just a bag, 4,500 cubic inch bags. Right. Right. Uh, as far as camp goes, we decided to camp at essentially the same place we camped at 2015. And there's a lot that went into this. We talked about it. We debated it because with elk hunting, thermals are going to go down the mountain in the morning. And as the sun heats up, they're going to go up the mountain midday then back down the mountain in the evenings. You know, it was a general rule. Well, if you're coming down on elk that are coming up in the morning, uh, you could see how that's problematic. But I think it goes back, for me, when we were talking about this, it was like, well, Chisholm, damn, we killed two bulls in 2015 and we camped up there. And it's close. To, the main the main reason we camp up there is just close to the lake, uh, close to water. And I said, well, let's just do it again, you know. And uh, and throughout the course of the week, we got educated a couple times on bulls busting us uh, to, you know, maybe make us reconsider that. That's where we camped. As far as our actual shelter, this was new to me, and I've been backpacking a long time. I never stayed in a teepee, and I'll let you talk about my attitude because I was pretty skeptical about that whole deal. Teepees, not necessarily specifically, but definitely floorless shelters you've been questioning for a couple of years now. And I How the hell are we going to stay dry in a floorless shelter? Because I've been in those mountains enough to know it's going to rain. <laughs> We're going to get wet. So. Yeah. Which it did, and we did, but not while we were in the teepee. Yeah. Um, you, you've had him on. You know, he's the CEO of Kafaru, but Aaron Snyder, and I don't know him personally. I think I talked to him on the phone about PAX one time, but uh, I've listened to a lot of his content um, on podcasts and things over the last few years. And uh, there's not a lot of guys in America, if you want top notch information about backcountry hunting from a gear and preparation perspective, you should check him his work out for sure. But um, you know, he advocates for, you know, early, late summer, early fall, you know, working with one of these floor shelters just to save weight. And, you, you know, you just don't need a floor, even when it's raining. He always says, put it in the right spot, which is, you know, not in a hole, right? Put right. the pitch your tent somewhere where you've got some slope going off away from your tent, but where you've got fairly level ground, whether that's one of their, um, tarp style shelters, which I we ha I have one. I didn't have it on this hunt or a TP style, style shelter or, or anything in between. As long as you're not in a divot where the water is going to funnel to you, they have a little, you know, two inch wide or whatever skirt around the bottom. And, you know, it rained and rained and rained every single day on us. And we never had any moisture on the ground inside of our tent. We had condensation. But that's with any tent. Yeah. Right. Yep. Um, we weren't getting any kind of water flowing under the tent. That worked fine. No, I didn't notice and a I think, single drop, and it rained every day. So yeah, I was right, blown exactly. away by that as someone who's so always this, just stayed in like a two- to four-man regular old tent, backcountry tent with the floor. Um, right. So that worked out well. We, we we also both had like, you know, a summer rest, and we had Kafaro bags. Um, something else that was cool about the teepee, though, 
which as far as a, let's just call it, um, I want to say like an emotional revival every evening when you're downtrodden, especially if, if we haven't had any shot opportunities on elk. And here we are, we're getting back to camp. We just walked uphill three miles. We're soaked. And we get back to camp, and the TP has a, a stove, wood-burning stove, and that was uh, one of the highlights of the whole trip, to be honest with you. Yeah, there's definitely something revitalizing, uh, morale-building about having a fire inside at the end of the day. Morale, yes, you know, absolutely. When you, yeah, when you're, when you're whipped, you just, and especially if you've got any kind of precipitation, the last thing you want to do is sit around a campfire outside. Um, so, yeah, that stove... You know, it, it it marries with that TP perfectly. That was all from a company called Seek Outside, and just a quick pitch to backcountry hunters and anglers. But I I joined the backcountry hunters and anglers a few years ago as a lifetime member, and they I think they still have some of these sponsorship deals where um, you can get like a, a Kimber firearm, um, one or two other items, and then they've got this deal with Seek Outside. I I basically got that tent and stove combo as a gift for signing up as a lifetime member. Um, BHA is my sort of passion project. Um, they're out there protecting these wild places that we get to go hunt as Americans. And it was a pretty sweet deal because, you know, by joining up and supporting them, I got this, this shelter system. Um, so the stove, yeah, it warms the place up. You get nice and toasty, warms your bag up. But the really critical thing for us dealing with as much rain as we dealt with is that you know, obviously a teepee comes to a point in the top. It's, it looks just like Native American teepee, right? But what we could do is we could hang from some little loops in the top of that teepee, our socks, our shirts, our mm. pants, whatever mm. we wanted, all within, a, you know, about a foot to 18 inches of the actual stovepipe and the tent stake going up, or tent pole. And there was all that heat obviously rises up and kind of gets trapped in that top cone. And so everything would be dry, after only 90 minutes of, of burning wood, you know, so we'd fall asleep with the fire going, we'd be nice and toasty as we fell asleep and it would stay you know, pretty warm for several hours and, you know, three or so in the morning, you might start getting a little chilly, but at that point it was time to get up anyway and everything up there was dry. So, yeah. um, yeah, it was, it was huge to have particularly on this hunt with the conditions that we had. Um, Oh, there wasn't going to be I'll, any sitting around a campfire in the rain for me. So, you know, and I've I've done that uh 2014, rained every day on me. I was doing it solo. Uh probably the most miserable I've ever been, to be honest with you. Uh couldn't get a fire going, cold camping, you know, it just it sucked. It really did. Uh so this was a absolute game changer and I will be getting one of these going forward. So I appreciate that uh it really passed the test with uh flying colors, no doubt. Yeah, it was a cool system. People say, "Oh, they took a stove up there." They're thinking it's probably pretty heavy. No, this thing is is made of very thin, some kind of metal, uh, you know. Yeah, like titanium and aluminum, I think. Breaks down yeah. into a tiny little bat carry bag. So, uh, I think it weighs. I think the stove itself weighs less than three pounds. With the smokestack, the stove pipe itself, the box that you build the fire in, the legs for it, and everything. It's yeah, it's pretty kick It's worth yeah. every ounce for sure. Yeah. So, uh, food wise, you took some. Uh, Hawks Vittles, we ate that every night. We took, you know, the standard high energy, just crap. I ate Pop-Tarts in the morning. We ate a lot of peanut butter uh, on tortillas with bacon, or uh, I know you took a loaf of bread up there. But basically, I don't want to talk about the food too much. Just eat as many calories as you can. Oh, you even had these, uh, I think they're made by Cliff Bar. They're just little 
calorie chews. Basically, each one of them had 100 calories, and you took uh, a sleeve of those up there first for every day. So uh, the whole the whole thing on that is just eat stuff that is full of calories. doesn't really matter if it's yep. good for you because you're going to burn it off anyway. Um, okay, and then as far as our, our actual clothing, I mean, thing that's going to keep us dry when we're out in the elements, probably the most important thing um, as far as that is concerned. Uh, we both love First Light. Um, people can, you know, we did that giveaway a couple weeks ago on Instagram. They saw my entire First Light kit, the sawtooth jacket, obsidian pants, the uh, merino wool, base layers, socks. I mean, the whole nine yards. Uh, so you you are a big fan of First Light as well. I don't, we don't really have to go into that in too much detail. But w- tell me this, what is your favorite piece of your First Light kit? Out of all the First Light stuff you had, which one? Uh, really yeah. stood out on this trip. You know, I've been a huge fan of the Chelma hoodie since our first hunt. I had uh, one of those up there. Um, I think it's a great piece where, you know, even as it gets a little warmer, you're, you're still fairly comfortable. I mean, what they're known for is their wool. They're good at everything they do, but, you know, they were the first company to be really successful at printing camo patterns on merino wool. And Absolutely. when they say that when they say it keeps you warm when it's wet, when they say it keeps you, you know, cool when it's hot and, and, and warm when it's cool and it still works even when the stuff gets wet and, and it's antimicrobial, my wool doesn't stink at all. Yeah, from my socks to my base layer, first light stuff, none of it does. All of those claims are true. Wool is the way to go, at least when it comes to what you're putting on your skin. Uh, I love the Chama. I had, I got one of those, uh, uh, you just mentioned that the... Um, Sawtooth. Yes, thank you. The sawtooth yeah, hoodie. That's my favorite. <laughs> uh, a yeah, a couple of months before this hunt, and I will say I love that thing. It is cool. It is comfortable. Um, sometimes it was a little too warm to uh, to be hiking in first thing in the morning, but as a, a layer when it got rainy and cold on us, as an insulation layer, as a, I slept in it some, <clears throat> used it as a pillow. That thing was awesome. Um, love their pants. If I had to... Pick one. It's either the Chama or the Sawtooth, uh, but I like all their gear. Yeah. I like the fact that they're one of the biggest supporters of BHA out there from a corporate perspective. Uh, I met a whole bunch of, well, I, I guess I met a bunch of BHA guys, but they're all very closely related to the uh, the First Light guys. You know, yeah. <clears throat> I follow those guys on Instagram and stuff. They all seem like great people, and they put out a great product. So, and I think they're camo patterns, man. The Cipher and the Fusion. Um, yeah. There's several good camo patterns out there, but I've listened to the guy who designed those patterns as well as ASAT and the theory that goes behind it, the biology that goes behind it about the structure of a cervid's eye um, and, and you know, the mic- macro and micro patterning. And it's based on fractal geometry, which I'm sort of just into that concept as a, you know, from a, from a general perspective, just the way like nature repeats itself. These camel patterns are based on natural structures. Like they look similar to how a tree grows, how rivers flow. That stuff works, man. I mean, it makes you basically identical, although you shot your bull with a, a tan first light hoodie on, <laughs> solid color from 15 yards away, so I don't know how important it is all the time. Yeah. It feels cool to wear camo. So. Well, hey, like you know, that. the old timers used to do it in red flannel shirts, so uh, yep. do I Do I think the camo helps? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you have on gear that's going to gear that's going to keep you warm and dry is more important than a camo pattern. So for sure. Uh, and first light has both. 
Uh, let's do this, though. Let's take a break, come back, and actually talk about what went on up there on the mountain because it was plenty miserable and uh, plenty awesome at the same time. Oh, good. Excellent. And that segment, by the way, brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Blinds. It's time for you to grab an All Seasons Fire Pit and Grill. It's perfect for your deer lease. It's, uh, what is it, 36 inches in diameter, I believe. It's got a footrest for you to put your boots up on at the end of a long day in the whitetail woods. Crack open a cold beer and, and start telling those hunting tales with the best of friends. And you can find the All Seasons Fire Pit uh, lineup at allseasonspeeders.com. We'll be right back with more from my good friend, the devoted archer himself, Chisholm Cook. You're listening to the Elk Edition of the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Did you know that you can manage specifically for wildlife? Yep, yep. Birds and deer don't show up on cue. We all know that. You need a plan to attract them. That's where Plateau Land and Wildlife comes in. If you're a landowner currently in ag and you're done messing with cattle and mending fences, but you want the same low property taxes for less work, well, you know what to do. Check out my friends over at Plateau Wildlife. Call 866-256-2935 or go to PlateauWildlife.com today. Hey, hey, all you waterfowl junkies out there. Cable here for TX Duck Blinds. Highly durable and highly mobile customized duck blinds built by duck hunters for duck hunters. Each blind is built from solid steel by professional welders and field tested before shipment. A duck season will come and go, but guess what? Your TX Duck Blind is built to last. Customize yours today by calling 817-965-1306. You can also find them at texasduckblinds.com or check them out on Instagram and Facebook at TX Duck Blinds. Pike County, Illinois, and the surrounding area is hallowed ground for whitetail hunters. And with 21 years' experience, Golden Triangle Whitetails is the oldest outfitter in the state. Spread out over 14,000 acres, they have 350 acres of food plots, 500 tree stands, and over 80 box blinds. The guides take pride in having hunters harvest giant Midwest bucks. Golden Triangle Whitetail hunts the Illinois archery, shotgun, and muzzleloader season. They have a full-time chef and excellent lodging. Book your whitetail hunt of a lifetime by going to www.goldentrianglewhitetail.com today. All right, waterfowl junkies, the finisher is the quick and humane way to dispatch a duck or goose. It's, uh, you know, it's unsettling when you've wrung that bird's neck, you throw it in the pile, and 10 minutes later, he's laying there flopping. Uh-uh, we don't want that. That's not ethical. And so the finisher alleviates that. You stick the finisher in the back of the bird's skull at an upward angle, give it a little twist, boom dead instantly never felt the thing the finisher is only 14 bucks it fits on any waterfowling lanyard and you can find it at adrenal-line.com hey guys cable here and i need to tell you about the go wild app if you've experienced any kind of hatred on social media from anti-hunters from tree huggers and the like then check out the growing go wild community it's free it's available for both iphones and android it's a great place to trade hunting and fishing stories recipes and share some of those bragging board moments of your outdoor successes. Check it out. It's the Go Wild app, available for both iPhones and Androids. Do you have a hog problem at your ranch or deer lease? We have the solution. The System Hog Trap comes in two sizes, 17-foot and 30-foot diameter traps. After you trap the hogs, take the top section off the trap and use it for another feeder site to keep the hogs away from the feeder. 
The system is both a trap and a deer food plot fence. That way you don't waste your money on just a hog trap. Call 940-391-3669 or visit www.goinfencing.com. That's goinfencing.com. Hi, this is Nolan Ryan. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. On a good day The snow on the pines Could be diamonds the wind glitters and shines And on a good day The steam from my cup There's little Zane Williams on a good day Bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show Elk Edition. I'm Cable Smith. Got my good friend Chisholm Cook here with me today as we are recapping uh, the do's and don'ts of the uh, backcountry elk woods. And believe me, we did uh, plenty of each on this trip, which we're going to get into here momentarily. Uh, But before we pick it back up with Chisholm, this segment of the show brought to you by Lone Star Beer. Don't forget they've got the new Lone Star Beer Texas Trophy Hunter Collaboration Camo Can that is out right now. Available for you this fall. Grab a 12-pack on your way to the deer lease. Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. All right, uh, well, let's jump back into it here with Chisholm as uh, we've given you a little bit of the backstory. Now we're going to actually get into our time on the mountain. What happened up there in the New Mexico wilderness? Uh, it started with an eight-mile hike on day one as we were heading uh, to a familiar spot where we camped in 2015. But Chisholm, we got off to a rough start. And I don't know how this happened because those Rocky boots that I wore have been to Montana, Africa, Colorado three times, and uh, New Mexico. The exact same trip that we did. I shot a mule deer with my muzzle loader in that unit last year. So to say that these boots had a lot of miles on them Uh, yeah they did and I don't know where I went wrong if I changed socks or what happened but three miles into that eight mile hike I started to develop some nasty blisters Uh, and I believe you know when I took my shoes off we sat down and you gave me some Luco tape to patch it up and you're like dude this is gonna be a long week for you (laughs) yeah and first off like I told you while we were up there I think day three or four you're the toughest guy I know. Um, when you're up against it, uh, you know, facing discomfort and a certain level of miser- misery, and you know your buddy is suffering way worse than you are, it sure makes it impossible to even think about quitting. So uh, <laughs> thanks for that, for just being a, a, a hard as a coffin nail. Um, I wonder, do you know, like the socks that you were wearing, were they maybe a little thinner than what you usually wear with those boots? I mean, I, I would say they're not what I had hiked in because I, you know, I I wasn't with first light last year. Um, and the, the socks might've been thicker, but again, I had put the miles on in Africa. I had done the mountain lion hunt in those and also, um, that Montana black bear hunt. So it did, had been doing a lot of walking in that combination sock and boot, uh, just you know, there, yeah, it wasn't definitely wasn't the change in socks. And you know, I looked at the way they fit. They, they fit the way I. Those socks look awesome, and they were compression socks. It, that, I didn't think it was the socks. I was wondering if maybe they were thinner. Yeah, that left space in your boot. But whatever it was, yeah, I mean, it just may be one of those things where yeah, they worked in Africa a month ago, but now they're shot. So yeah, yeah. it sucked. Uh, I felt terrible for you that you, we weren't even three miles up an eight mile hike to start the <laughs> whole thing, and you were already rubbed raw, and not to mention your toe was already 
banged up going into it. Um, <laughs> that I quickly well, forgot about the uh, the uh, cortisone injection in my toe and that whole situation. Once I got the blisters, it was uh, that that was a minor detail at that point. Right. Yeah. Uh, so. So anyway, we get to camp and we decide to do a little hunting on day one, uh, an area that we knew very well. And I think we heard what do we hear? One bugle that evening? More of just a scouting trip. But. I think he he might have sounded off for us a couple times, but yeah, I mean there was a definite definitely a bull uh, just to the north of where we kind of focus most of our hunting efforts in the next drainage. Um, if I can just stop on that for a second, I always like to sort of describe the area so people can kind of know what, you know, where there are elk here every time we go there. And so this habitat definitely seems to contain them, but there's a, there's a high ridge that runs north and south. It's several miles long. And then there's creeks that run off of that high ridge from basically from west to east down to a river valley. And between each of those creeks are these easy sort of round topped ridges, not knife edge ridges, but these round top ridges sloping downward to the east. And so we were in the main valley that we hunt that's closest to our camp and to the north valley from that, the north next north drainage, there was a bull in there. Um, he sounded off a few times. It was late that Monday evening, so we figured, you know, day one was the next day and we'd get after him then. But yeah. Which we flipped uh, the coin. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're going hunting with your buddies, there's a great way to do it. Just alternate days because if you get crappy weather odds are you're both going to experience some of it. You don't want to do three days on the front end and your buddy do three days on the back end, especially elk hunting because, uh, you know, bugling action is only going to pick up that first week. So that's what we did. I think it was a pretty good compromise. Well, and I think it helps to sort of like balance the physical toll too, right? I mean, if you had hunted the first three days, heck, by the last three days, we're shot, right? So, right. you know, at least, at least you both get like a, a decently fresh day and then a and day two for each of you kind of sucks, and then day three for you, each of you, you're like broken down and ready to get out of there. Right. And that's probably when you'll kill the elk, which is what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so we go back to camp that night, uh, get up the next morning, we go back to that drainage where we'd heard the bulls sounding off. Saw, uh, we saw elk every day, and we saw uh, five cows and a spike, I think, feeding in a meadow up there. We bailed off the other side and went after that bull, uh, but, you know, he just... For whatever reason, didn't really want to play ball. So uh, it was kind of disappointing on that front. Yeah, I mean, he seemed to call back at us, I think, a couple, three times. But he definitely wasn't coming to us. I think that, you know, especially with what we managed to accomplish later in the week, I think we probably um, should have been a little bit more aggressive there, could have been more aggressive for sure, and actually pursued him a little bit. Um, but we got, you know, where we kind of knew his general direction and we tried some calling. He was uh, responsive for 10 minutes or so, and then it was over. And, you know, rather than chase after him into the timber, you know, we decided to kind of let him be and go try something else. Um, Nothing else worked you know, that day. I don't think we heard another pupil, uh all day that day. No, we didn't. And, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, you, there's always the dilemma, especially early in the hunt, the you push the animal, you try to force something to happen and risk blowing out that entire drainage for three days, or do you say, well, he's in there, he's fairly active, maybe we'll get a better setup of one tomorrow. You know, we went with the ladder. Could we have killed him if we charged in there after him? Maybe. The ladder actually we ended up doing, so. going to the next day uh, was, <laughs> I think, the wrong choice because we never heard him at all. 
and uh, and he Uh, he had bailed out of that area or just wasn't interested and I I I don't I don't know if we heard a bugle that day at all Chisholm uh, to be honest on your first day of hunting I can't remember what we saw that morning but we did get that cow to come in close yeah yeah so that's one thing we did a lot let me just to kind of describe that uh on these on these ridges you've got these uh benches right so Benches is a flat spot. It slopes down gradually, and, and then it kind of flattens out. And that's, those areas are great for holding elk. They, why, why would you stand on a slope if you could stand on flat ground, right? Uh, a lot of times, that's where water's going to pull up as well. That's great habitat. Um, and so we would do cold calling setups on those benches. And within five minutes, I think this cow came in close to 830 in the morning, and uh, here she came running and, and we're both calling you know we, we have our little system uh you call maybe make two calls and i'll call back to you and anyway she's running right at me probably gonna run me over and, and you stopped her with a meh meh and she stopped and i'll be damned if her vitals weren't right behind a pine tree i've been telling people that i've talked to throughout the week it was like they teach that in elk school don't stop without putting how not to get killed by a bow hunter (laughs) yeah geez like a couple things on what you were just talking about you know again for three plus years now i've just like absorbed every ounce of elk information i can and that's what you just described kind of like multiple people cow calling you know the whole point is realism right sound like elk and particularly sound like you know a few different elk and there's lost cow calls and they're designed to sort of help each other locate each, you know, help the elk locate each other and get responses. And there's, uh, assembly calls and, and those don't necessarily generate a response, but they're saying, Hey, come to me round up, you know, and, and those are both different types of cow calls. And then there's all kinds of different bugles and everything. But what we try to do is, is to create a scene that sounds like a few different elk hanging out to get some kind of attention, whether that's a lonely cow who's managed to find herself, you know, running around alone, which this cow was absolutely that. I mean, like you said, she came in on a trot, uh, almost a full run. She had mu- somehow gotten off by herself and didn't like it. They're, they're, they're uh, communal social animals. And um, she thought somebody, She we were obviously very close to her when we started sounding off. She came in kind of full blast. But by having you, you know, making a call here and there and me making a call here and there, it kind of sounds like at least a mom and a cow or, you know, maybe a small group of animals. It, what's incredible is how they can pinpoint exactly where you're calling from. So if you're sitting there all by yourself and you're blowing cow calls and bugles, it sounds like two animals are standing right next to each other, where if you're 40 yards away and you're making some squeaks here and there and I'm making some squeaks here and there, that's they're so good at pinpointing exactly where that sound's coming from, that's going to sound a lot more realistic to them. And I, and I think it's it worked for us going all the way back to 2015. It worked for us that morning. And like you said, unfortunately, <laughs> she came in booking behind me and I was kind of in front of a tree. I'll put it this way. I, I didn't know why you didn't shoot. I was like, he, I saw you come to full draw. And I was like, I know Chisholm about, for, for him, this hunt, more so than me, is about taking meat home to his family. Yes, that's ultimately the best byproduct of taking an animal. But, you know, whether I was going to shoot her a cow or not, that would be determined later on in the week. You were going to shoot the first legal thing you saw. And so when this yep. cow comes in, I'm like, what the heck? Because I couldn't see from the angle that she stopped behind a tree. I was like, "Why didn't you shoot?" <laughs> yep, yep. So, no, she was horrible she was luck. running behind me. I drew while she was. So there was like a group of four or five pines or firs or whatever they are. That's when I drew. She's 
she cleared that and I realized like she started going faster. You know, she, she kind of slowed down while she was behind those, which made it nice to draw. And then as she came out of there, she was running again and she was going faster and faster. And so I, I was either going to get to a point where I was going to have to step out from behind my tree and swing around and, and maybe shoot her moving, which I didn't want to do, or, you know, it was only 15 more yards and she was going to be on top of you and I wasn't going to shoot right at you. So yeah, I gave her the old, you know, outdoor TV meh sound and it worked. She slowed to a stop and put her crease of her shoulder right behind the darn tree. And I had nothing. Yeah. And then of course she saw me. And once I'd given myself my spot away, she saw me and I'm standing there at full draw. And, uh, yeah, she turned around, took off back the way she came from and never slowed down. So I didn't have a chance to make it happen. But yeah, you know, do I want a big 350 inch bull like badly? Yes, absolutely. I would love to have that, but, uh, Elk meat is delicious. It's good for you. My kids love it. So, and, um, I and put it, a lot of I put a lot of work into trying to bring that meat home. So, absolutely. no matter what, yeah. And we talk about this doesn't internal like. this internal struggle that we each have. Uh, you know, yours is is definitely greater than mine. I would say because I get to call this work ultimately. And so when I tell my wife I have to go work in the mountains in New Mexico, she rolls her eyes, but she gets it. Uh, this is something that you have to do. For to I would say revitalize your soul, to all those things we talked about, be a better father, husband, Christian, uh, employee, uh, boss, you know whatever it is. This is what where you come to, kind of uh, you know have your cup runneth over again, so to speak, every year. For sure, like I mentioned on the way out, I was playing that Bob Marley song, but uh, the the thing about that for me is there's. Um, you know, I think more and more every year I, I try to think more about others, especially including my family, obviously. Yeah. Less and, and you feel me, guilty about week. leaving them for a week. I mean, you do. For sure. Yeah. And, and this, That's this week struggle. is really, yeah, yeah th- this week each year is. Chisholm has four girls for anyone that doesn't know. He's the father of four beautiful girls. Yeah. And uh, oh, it's you. a lot to ask his wife to, to, to run that household for a week. It's a lot to ask my wife to do it for a week with three kids. Um, but, uh. I know you feel that guilt, and and that's why the meat thing is so just, I mean, ultimately for you, like you said, you want a 350-inch bull, but your kids love elk meat, and at the end of the day, uh, you got to come home. Daddy's got to bring some meat home. (laughs) Yep. So for the the spiritual, uh, personal, mental renewal, if I can also be bringing back meat for the family, that sort of just closes the loop. Like, it's it's not a 100% selfish thing. It's a... It's a, uh, you know, again, it's what I feel like God intended us to do. I'm out hunting and gathering. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our modern society, that's not the way of life, right? So we frown upon by a lot of hunt, people. <laughs> sure, absolutely, but we we hunt for recreation um, more than you know people hundreds of years ago or certainly thousands of years ago. But we do it because it is you know DNA. It's in our DNA. It's ancestral, and um, I still take that, generally speaking, that mindset to it of of. Uh, you know, it's about bringing home the meat. And I'm a, when it comes to deer, I'm a much more selective hunter, uh, you know, because we're around deer all the time. We live in Texas, the whitetail capital of the oh, yeah. world. And, yeah. um, I mean, you won't you know, shoot, I don't a, shoot anything that's not mature. So. That's right. Nothing under, say, six and a half anymore. Um, even, you know, one, my deal with that is I'm looking for a mature animal. He doesn't have to be a 160-inch deer, but I want him to be mature. When it comes to elk, I get one shot a week at it. Uh, I trust that the states that are... You know, the state agencies are regulating the, the herd right, and they're giving out the right number of tags. And, you know, they take into account 
spikes getting killed and cows getting killed and bulls getting killed. And so if I've got a tag that says any elk, I'm going to shoot the first one I see. Right. Right. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, and in a unit that has a, uh, bow hunter success rate of under 20%, I mean, it is what it is. Uh, yep. it's not like we're managing for a 160 inch whitetail deer out there. So it's yep. totally different, different experience. Day three was, uh, one where we actually got into some elk. Like I said, rest of that day, your your day, day two, nothing really happened. Day three, we went to basically where you killed your bull in 2015. There's a burn scar that stretches for basically miles uh, around this this mountain. And uh, I think we, we dropped down elevation maybe like 10-6, um, something like that. And uh, And that day, we actually got into some bugling in the morning and then again in the evening. Uh, we had bulls, one bull talking to us in the morning, one in the evening, and got them probably both to within 60 yards. Never saw them, but we heard them. Like, not just heard them bugling, but could hear them raking and, you know, stepping on sticks and busting their antlers on saplings. Uh, but those damn thermals, man, uh, it's part of elk hunting, and, and it was very evident that day that the swirling winds uh, just it wasn't going to happen for us. Yeah, it was tricky, man. I would say, first of all, that was definitely the best day um, in terms of activity next to the day that, you know, we got it done. Yeah, we heard, uh, well, I think it was for sure two of maybe three different bugles when we reached that bench. So, we, you know, we went up over about a, a peak that's at about 11.8 coming out of camp and then worked down the backside of it. And the whole backside is this series of benches, right? It's like stair steps. So you go down a little bit of a steep patch, maybe it's 100 yards, and then it flattens out for 100 yards and then down again. And like you said, we were within a few hundred yards of where I killed my bull uh, three years ago. Pretty confident they'd been be in there. I mean, almost the elk exact sign everywhere. Scenario. I mean, everywhere elk we elk went, sign. there was elk sign yeah. everywhere. Yeah. So almost the same scenario as my bull three years ago, where we had across that last bench, we had two or three different bulls sounding off, and you know when we started calling, one of them engaged, and unfortunately this time that one was the one that was already kind of the wrong direction based on which way the winds kept swirling. And over a five-minute period, I think they reversed 180 degrees, the thermals, like every minute, like five times it seemed like. And, you know, like you said, one of the things I like to point out for folks is, you know, I think we've learned going back to that first hunt is when you're in timber, if you can hear a bull, that bull is way closer than he sounds. It's a weird sound. Absolutely. It, it sounds like he's miles away, but if you can hear him, given the noises in the trees, given uh, just the, the, you know, the, the fact that the trees somewhat block the sound, that they create this weird echoey um, you know, reverberation through there, you might have a creek nearby that's, that's, that's uh, disrupting your ability to hear, whatever it is, it, they're closer than they sound. And my thought, I've really sort of developed this notion that if I can say, say I'm staring downhill, and I'm like, there's a bull to my left. Somewhere over there, like 180 degrees, somewhere between noon and six o'clock. Then I know that bull. I'm guessing that bull's 300 yards away. Mm-hmm. Knowing what we know now, I would say I'm moving that direction. If I've got, especially if I've got a, a stable thermal, which this particular morning we did not. Yeah. <laughs> if I can look and say he's like between, he's like between eight and eleven. Maybe he's at say 200 ish yards. If I can say that bull is at nine o'clock, like directly for sure that direction. We're within 100 to 150 yards of him. We're most likely going to be able to call him to us. Um, if we're going to move, we better be darn careful because he might end up only being 60 yards away, but he's close at that point. And so 
You know, this bull started off, all we knew was he was, I had a fair range on him. I'd say I felt like he was between that 8 to 11 o'clock uh, window. If I'm looking, if 12 o'clock straight downhill, he was somewhere off to my downhill left. And then we got working cow calls, those two call sequence of, uh, you know, the lost cow and the assembly call. He was bugling right when he was supposed to at me. Uh, I threw a bull in there. In retrospect, that might have been a mistake. I bugled at one point when I knew he was, he was like down at 10 o'clock. He, at this point, he had closed the distance, and he, I knew for sure he was less than 100 yards downhill at a diagonal. I bugled at that point. I think he bugled back once or twice. Then he went quiet. And, and I'm set up. You know, he's up you know, a little bit. I'm set up yeah. in front of Chisholm. Like, basically, you're set up every time. It depends on the wind. Sometimes uh, the shooter needs to be upwind. Sometimes the shooter needs to be downwind. Uh, it just depends. If you can predict that the elk is going to come in from downwind, uh, you know, it might be the long way for the elk, but that's generally what uh, a mature bull is going to do. But, you know, and that's what, uh, that's what the bulls did that day. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the textbook says, uh, I always refer to this, you know, fictional textbook, right? But right. You know, the book of elk hunting would say, put your shooter, if you're calling, put your shooter between you and the, well, downwind of you. Because presumably the animal is going to work downwind of you, and so if your shooter's 50 yards downwind of you, and that bull goes 60 yards downwind of you, he's going to get a shot before you get winded. Um, but when the thermals are switching back and forth, that's basically impossible. And you had Ryan Callahan from First Light on the other day, who's you know a world class hunter in a lot of ways, and he was like, sometimes you got to throw the book out the window, right, and just make it yeah. make make whatever you've got work, and it doesn't always, you know, it just doesn't always happen the way it's supposed to. Like you know, we called that six by six in that very first year. I was convinced he was going to go down the valley and get downwind of us. Well, I didn't consider the fact that he's not afraid of anybody. So he just walked across the straight to us. Yeah. And if I had set up, you know, in about a hundred other ways. Where I told him to set up. Arrow that day. Right. Where, where Cable said to show up. <laughs> so. um, but, yeah, so that bull, I, like you said, I think 60 to 80 yards. He worked his way up wind of us. We heard him wreck a tree for a little bit, and then he just disappeared. And so, no doubt. It's amazing how those 700-pound animals, Chisholm, can just disappear you know it's amazing uh, how he can how he moved from how he, he went how uphill he 100 yeah he went uphill probably 80 yards to get downwind of us and we didn't hear him make cracking didn't make a sound going up didn't hear him make a sound leaving you know the only sound we heard from that whole time was when he raked on a tree right up until he caught our wind so yeah 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 so that was the end of that morning essentially you know i'm sure we i think we did another cold calling setup but uh then in, then the rains came and and by the way, it rained every day except for the very last day, um, and we basically would find a big pine tree, maybe two or three clustered together, and just sit. And we did this pretty regularly uh, between the the rain and the hail. I mean, that's where we spent the majority of our afternoons. Uh, so thank God for good first light rain gear, right? <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Thank God for good reindeer rain gear. Um, Thank God for fir trees or whatever. You know, it sucked because they kept us. We stayed dry until we had to start walking again. And you know, when you're in, when you're bushwhacking like we were doing, you're not walking on a trail. You know, there's vegetation even in the forest, especially in that burn. There's leafy, grassy vegetation that these animals are feeding on. That's shin high, maybe even knee high. And so, no matter how good a job we did keeping ourselves dry while it was raining, when it was time to go home, we were our legs were and especially our boots were just getting soaked was that the most so, annoying thing about this trip for you having your feet wet the entire time 
Absolutely, man. No doubt about it. Not yeah. like I can't really even think of something else I could call annoying. I mean, it was from first thing in the morning because you've got damp boots that are. That are you know, it was getting below forty degrees every night, which means you're putting a damp boot on that's that cold. You know, if you got your, if you managed to get your socks dry the night before, they were instantly wet. Then and they were cold. My first hour hike every day, my feet were so numb I couldn't feel them at all. Um, you know, if you manage to get them dry, it started raining again that afternoon. They're you're starting all over again. It's hard to keep. You know, for me, I want my boot snug to the point where my foot's not moving in it. Well, as they get wet like that, that leather stretches, the laces stretch, and the next thing you know, you're either you know whacking downhill or whacking uphill, and your toes are banging into the toe of the boot, or your heels are banging into the heel of the boot. Uh, just because you can't keep everything right when it's soaked. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. it was. Yeah, it, it, it was. It was tough, man. I'll, it's about time for me to get some new boots. I've got, I don't know, a couple few hundred miles on them easily, and there's some snags in the Gore-Tex on both boots now. Um, I'm going to try to find some that will be a little bit more resistant, but like you've always said, there's a certain level of moisture that you just can't keep out. Yeah, people don't realize that, especially folks that hunt in drier places, you know, northwest Colorado, uh, Wyoming, Montana. Uh, hell, Ryan Callahan was telling us he doesn't take a tent. He just sleeps under the stars when he's early season elk hunting. Well, that's not a thing in New Mexico. It is a freaking rainforest in northern New Mexico, and your feet are going to be wet. So if you can't deal with it, you don't go hunting there. And that's the bottom line because <laughs> it's going to be yep. uncomfortable. And uh, I'm sure there's other places that are like that, you know, up uh, in the Pacific Northwest. I'm, I'm sure Oregon, Washington State, um, those guys probably know all about that as well. Um, but that's just uh, – that's just the price of doing business where we were hunting. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I mean, somehow we had, we dodged that bullet in 2015 basically the entire week, but uh, the year before you had gotten soaked. And so it, yeah. I've been fortunate I've dodged it the first three seasons of my elk hunting life, but uh, I knew at some point I wasn't going to be able to avoid it anymore, and this was that year. Yeah. Well, we're going to gloss over that afternoon. We did get into uh, another conversation with a bull. Uh, but basically the same thing that happened that morning. The thermals uh, swirled on us, and, and that was Church as uh, he busted us. So uh, let's do this. Let's pick it back up with days five and six after the break. Sounds good. All right, and that segment of the show brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. They've been helping their borrowers finance their own piece of Texas for over 100 years. They'll do the same for you, whether you want a property for recreational use, hunting, Hey, maybe you want to run cattle, if that's your thing. Uh, you fancy yourself a rancher. Whatever the case may be, if you're looking to purchase that own slice of paradise that you could call your own, Lone Star Ag Credit has you covered. Go to LoneStarAgCredit.com to see for yourself. We'll be right back with more from the devoted archer himself, my good buddy Chisholm Cook. Uh, we're actually going to put an arrow in a bowl here in just a minute, I promise you that. We'll be right back on the elk edition of the Lone Star Outdoor Show. I felt the lights on the big, big stages A fire burning in my soul I had those nights where my guitar was raging It's not something you control, little darling It's not something you control
Cable here for isocialboost.com, a tool that many outdoor enthusiasts are using to grow their Instagram audiences. And if you're growing your Instagram audience, you're growing your brand. I recently let isocialboost.com take over a new page I created, and the growth has been incredible. iSocialBoost can help you expand your audience to heights you never imagined. Plus, you'll save 80%, that's right, 80% off your first week if you use my promo code LONESTAR. That's Lone Star at isocialboost.com. These are real followers who engage on a regular basis. Check it out, isocialboost.com. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at bobcatadvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. Hey, y'all. Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a -a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Breaking every regulation, crossing every moral line, waving the cross in front, but they're little devils I was behind when there's fire in the valley, there's smoke in the sky. There's a little farmer, not so John. Fire in the Valley bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith here with you today as you are tuned into the Elk episode of the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Uh, thanks to our presenting sponsors as well Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. I've still got my buddy Chisholm Cook. Uh, a.k.a. the Devoted Archer, here with me. As you guys have heard the backstory of, of this journey, uh, now we're going to get into the actual, well, the, the actual moment of truth, how it all played out. Uh, it's, it's telling when it comes to elk behavior. Every time you go into the elk woods, you learn something new. Chisholm and I found that out over and over again uh, on this week-long adventure in New Mexico. And we'll dive into the actual moment of truth, uh, the day that we took that 5 by 5 here in just a second. But, you know, uh, Chisholm, we talked about how elk hunting has really given us a purpose to be better men, better fathers, husbands, Christians, friends. And we talk a lot about these serious things on the mountain, uh, things that I know in my own personal life I, I rarely discuss. Uh, those those type of things. It's it's nice to uh, get removed from it all, get unplugged from social media, and have a, a meaningful conversation. Because I think our society is certainly going away from those experiences, those encounters, and and having all interactions right there on their cell phone. It's kind of sad. Uh, but back to this hunt. You know, it might seem crazy for people to think that a couple Texas guys are so obsessed with elk hunting. Hell, you've got a, a tattoo of a bull in the mountains on your arm. 
I mean, we live this for 51 weeks out of the year. We prepare for it, and then for one week, uh, we live it. Yeah, I mean, I would only tweak that a little bit to say, you know, I, I didn't uh, need a, a quote a purpose in life, but I definitely wanted a uh, what I call like an anchor point to focus on to just strengthen my overall being. Right, like my purpose sure. in life, and you, ha- and I'm not you. This is you as well. Yeah, our purposes are our family, our faith. Uh, you know, full faith and family in that order, and then everything else, you know, in rank priority from there. But, um, you know, the cool thing about elk hunting for me is it's, it's a chicken or the egg thing. Like, if I kill a bull, I get to feed my family what I consider to be the absolute best protein you can find in the continental United States, right? And <clears throat> so it's, it's, it's a passion for me, it's a way of sustenance for me. It's something that requires the most out of me 365 days a year. So I'm ready to take advantage of it when it's time. And, you know, so uh, a focal point, really, that, that, that has these tentacles that touch on every aspect of who I want to be as a man. Mm-hmm. You know, everything from, like we said, a, you know, from a Christian husband, father, uh, like employee. I mean, I'm, I've been just grinding since I got back work-wise because not that I don't always, but I'm revitalized in that respect as well because, you know, it just, it just cleanses all the clutter out of my mind and, you know, the other 360 days out of the year, it's, boy, I better be doing something today to be the best I can be because I've only got, you know, I got 11 and a half months before I'm getting my butt kicked up there again. Right, right. I'd say that, you know, thinking about it while you were talking, I was thinking about uh, another word that would describe it and I would say discipline. It gives me discipline. Yes. Uh, there you go. That's that's exactly the way I feel about it. Yeah. It has given me that anchor around which I can structure a disciplined lifestyle. Yeah. Everything that I do, you know, these days I get up at five before five thirty every single day, and I either start cranking on work right away and do a workout sort of midday, or I go straight and work out and I knock that out and I'm you know I'm back at my for my to my work day at seven forty five. Whatever it is, it's just given me that that anchor for a daily discipline structure to my life, which has let me be more productive, um, you know, more available, more, you know, with it around the house, et cetera. So. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and, and dive back into this haunt as we are getting close to uh, the, the climax. And uh, that would be on, on day five, which ironically was September 8th. And that was the same day, that I killed my bull in 2015, and 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 on that day, uh, there was a lot of bugling going on. Well, we didn't know what was going to happen, but let, let's let's give everyone kind of a background. We're both frustrated at this point, um, you know, because there just wasn't much bugling on 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 day four, which we glossed over. We didn't hear a single bugle. That was your second day to hunt, not one. And we're we're. We're just kind of like, man, we're here too early, you know. We 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 screwed ourselves basically because we came, we tried to take advantage of the Labor Day holiday, you know, meant you didn't have to take another another day off of work, and uh, and we were like, God, we just came too early. This sucks, you know. We're feeling sorry for ourselves, and that happens when you're up in the mountain for, you know, putting ten to twelve miles on your boots every day. Um, but luckily, and, and I've done it both ways. I've done it solo, and I've done it with you, and uh, and our mutual friend David and. The way to do it is not by yourself if you can avoid it, uh, because it's nice to have that guy there, your buddy, to pick you up when you're when you're feeling down. And it does happen. I mean, the mountains are uh, 
they're a, a different animal, one that uh, will break you, bend you. That's the, that's the key. Don't don't break, but it will bend you every day, and it'll bend you again. It might almost break you, uh, but then that's where your buddy's like, "Hey, dude, we still got this." Absolutely, man. I, I, you know, I think any two like-minded dudes who are focused um, should be able to go in and do exactly what we did, which, like you just described, I mean, you kind of barely glossed over my day, but you know, I I let us sleep in on day four, my second day. Eh, well, that's not totally true. Waking up well, at five thirty isn't actually sleeping in. <laughs> no, right. We didn't sleep till sunup. Five thirty is, or I think it was five forty. It was early. It was, it was still very early, right? But. We wasn't 4.30 when we had been getting up, and it yeah. caused me to rush, caused me to bust an elk out of the very place I was wanting to call an elk, and that frustrated me, right? But, you know, just like I did for you the next day, it was like, okay, dude, well, let's just make a plan for the rest of the day and go execute it, you know? And, you know, don't beat yourself up. It is what it is, you know? We had the right idea. We just keep going. And so being able to, to balance each other, I think everybody, both of us take the approach that, you know, the shooter is going to have more emotional investment throughout the day than the caller. So it's that, you know, Mm -hmm. you let the shooter make the calls, but when he starts to get a little sideways or starts to get a little frustrated, then you step in there and you, you help pick him up and you keep the focus. And that's what we did throughout it. As far as the timing, you know, I've listened to countless opinions on what the best timing is. And, you know, the first week of elk season, first week of September is generally, when you've got bulls have busted up from their bachelor groups, gone into their staging areas, and they're considered generally callable, but it's often you're going to get them coming in quiet, right? Mm-hmm. Or a really effective way to hunt them is over a water hole, which is not our style. We don't. We, well, it's, you can't in New Mexico. Hunting. There's water everywhere. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that's problem number one for sure. Right. right. Different up there than like Arizona, but um, but it's also just not why we go do it. We get to sit in tree stands and tripods and other types of blinds waiting for whitetails. That's why I don't shoot turkeys at a feeder, you know? It's more fun to go get them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and we had, I don't think we, I don't think I realized that we were four to five days earlier this year than we were three years ago on a calendar basis. Um, That might've changed my opinion a little bit from, like you mentioned earlier, I've got a regular working stiff job. So having labor day off, um, I like to structure my elk hunt around having that extra day off which means I can kind of tag an extra vacation day on the end of it. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I think what we saw on definitively is that by the end of the week, all of the dominant bulls had cows. So something was going on, even though we weren't hearing a lot mm-hmm. of activity. What I realized and what I said to you that Saturday morning was, I think you need those cows to start herding up with the, with the herd bull. Um, you know, it makes it hard to kill a herd bull. It, the first week might be the easy, the best week for killing a herd bull, but the second and third weeks are when you can kill a satellite bull much easier because the competition's on. The, the dominant bulls have all the girls, and the satellite bulls are hanging around trying to pick one off. So whatever racket you start making during those periods will get the attention of, of those four- to five- to six-year-old bulls who aren't <clears throat> lucky enough to have a harem with them. Yeah. And um, yeah. So, so, you know, it just depends on what style of hunting you prefer. You know, if you're not going to, you don't want to be super active and, you know, you're cool with the ambush hunting the first week's probably pretty good. You do a lot of staring. Um, but if you want to be engaged with them and really be able to hear an animal and put a move on them, which is what we ultimately did, I think weeks two and three are, are definitely where you should focus because you're going to have worked up bulls um, just trying to find 
you know, a girl that's off by herself, basically. So yeah, yeah. Well, and, and we would try to go kill that herd bull on on Saturday morning. My day, my plan was let's get up in this meadow. We've seen this herd bull here. We saw him earlier in the week without cows. Uh, saw him with cows the night before. The deal is though, uh, that bull in that in that area of that unit, he's picked the best bedroom. He is basically unkillable um, once he's got his cows with him uh, because he has so many escape routes. He knows the thermals are coming downhill in the morning. And and so there he was that morning out in the meadow. Uh, and when I say meadow, don't think of a flat place because that's not what this is. This is a meadow that starts at 11,000 feet and doesn't quit until it's, what, at 10,000? I mean, <laughs> probably probably dropped 1,000 feet in elevation uh, all the way yeah, down. A mile and a half. Yeah. yeah. So he's up there. It's very, very steep. And, uh, and he, you know, we, we go, we actually drop down on the other side of the, the crest of the ridge there to try to block our wind. And we come out the other side after we thought we had gotten, um, upwind of him. And he was down at the yeah. bottom, like he had already covered a quarter of a mile. And I was like, do you think he heard us? He's like, no, he smelled us. I was like, there is no way that he smelled us. He's like, dude, he smelled us. I was like, okay, yeah, you're right, I guess. And at that point I got pretty dejected. I was like, God, we screwed this up. Probably weren't going to kill him anyway, to be honest, because of this scenario that we just laid out for you. Uh, but he was an elk where we knew where he was, and I, I thought maybe we could kill him. Um, but you were like, hey, dude, let's do this. Let's. Uh, it's your day, still your day. You know, obviously we've got – this is at like 7.30 in the morning, and the sun had just come out. Like, let's go back into the dark timber and start calling, um, see what happens. And so that's what we did, man, and – and we set up for one cold calling uh, sequence, and you struck a bugle. So from there, it was pretty much just us moving towards where that bugle was coming from. Yeah, yeah. Just to kind of expound a little bit on some thought I was getting at a minute ago. I, when if you're going to work it the way we did, where you're alternating days, you've got a shooter and a caller, and you know one day you're the shooter and your buddy's the caller, and vice versa. There's a delicate balance there because you got to let your buddy make his call, mm-hmm. the, the shooter, right? It's your hunt that day. But you also have to know when to put your foot down and be like, you're, you gotta, you got to be able to you gotta know your friend, your buddy well enough to know when he's being emotionally invested in the situation that's clouding his logical judgment. You had done that for me the day before, and again, it was time for me to repay the favor in that moment. Kind of like, you know, finding... Find you know tracking an animal. I, I've found when I've had an animal that's wounded and it's hard for me to find it. It's my buddies who are helping me track that are the ones that are critically thinking and and, and every, with every minute that goes by, oh, I become more and just more like 2015 deranged, when right? you found my bull. Exactly. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yeah. With, and, I, and I and I and I had the same thing with several whitetails where I couldn't find anything worthwhile and my buddies were like, "Here's some blood. Here's some blood. Here's some blood." And it, so so we you know you had wanted to, to get down below those animals and work back up to him. But the problem is to cross the top of that valley, it was the clearest day we had, which meant it was the coldest morning we had. We had a heavy frost on the ground. We had a ripping downhill thermal. Like you said, as soon as we crossed the top of the valley, those animals busted us. We tried to get a few hundred yards down and see if we end around them. And by the time we came back out, they had, they were further away from us downhill than where we started. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, you were like, well, can we just get it? You want to just get out in the valley and chase them down? And I was like, cable fuel this wind, man. It, we can do whatever you want, bro. But the wind is <laughs> ripping right down towards them. If we step out into that grass and follow them down this valley, do you think there's any chance of catching them? 
And they're like, no. And I said, okay, so let's do this. Let's go side hill around back to where we called that cow, uh, work those benches, see if we can hear something that gives us a sense of direction to head. And from there, you know, as we make some cold call setups and whatnot, we'll follow the next valley down. And then this afternoon, we can work up the main valley you wanted to hunt because we know there's that bull and those cows that will eventually be back up there. Maybe we can figure something out. And the wind would be in our favor at that point. So, Right. Yeah, Yeah. or at least we'd be in a position to work the wind as opposed to having nowhere to go but directly upwind of the bull. So here's a cool thing, too, is that we have all of these waypoints saved on our GPS. And, and in 2015, we also had another buddy, David, who is – I'm not going to lie. He's a better hunter than I am. I think Chisholm would agree that he's a better hunter than Chisholm uh, as well. Uh, Eagle yeah. Scout and the kid that I grew up in uh, at church my entire life. And uh, his yeah, dad is – wildlife biology. Yeah, yeah. And his dad is the one who ultimately is responsible for my love of the mountains um, – they do this annual mountain man trip at the church I grew up in. My dad and his buddies have been doing it 30 years. When you turn 21, you're invited. So I was, uh, I guess, what what is it, 2018? I've been going into the mountains with them, I don't know, 16, 17 years, every year. And so, uh, you know, you know how much those, those mountains mean to me. And, and David and Tim are a big part of that. But going back to these waypoints, um, we had a place marked on your, your Garmin inReach, that said David's bull 2015. Well, David had shot and wounded a bull. We never did find it. Uh, much to David's credit, he put his tag away and said, I'm done hunting. I'm, I've wounded this animal. I'm going to keep looking for it. And he never did stop looking for it until we left. Uh, but we went basically where we would get into this bull was like 500 feet from where that that waypoint was. So the whole point of this is that elk are very predictable. If you find them in one spot one year, uh, likely they're going to be in that spot at the same time the next year. Yeah, and, and, and to that end, it was the terrain. I mean, that's where we found the cow on day two, my first day of hunting, was this bench you're talking about. And particularly, again, going back to the quote, the, the elk Bible, like it's a, it's a ridge that faces north, so dark timber facing to the north with a series of benches down towards a creek bottom. Like as soon as we got in there, we saw exactly why David had, you know, had an, a bull, an opportunity on a bull in there three years ago. And it was obvious they were still using it because, like you said, I mean, you couldn't take five steps without stepping on a pile of elk poop. It was perfect. And so, you know, getting back to sort of how we got back on track that day, we, you know, you were feeling like, man, we should have camped down low, like you've mentioned. And then we kept yeah. working up. I was second guess where we set up like, our camp. Yeah, it was bad. Right. On day five, which was, <laughs> yeah, which was, you know, I just looked at you and I said, man, it doesn't matter now. Let's try to go find a bull, right? So, uh, let's go back to where we had some success calling a cow and, that's what I mentioned, you know, like, so in the, in the meantime, we had a whole bunch of sheep hunters up there. I guess the, the sheep herd in, in this unit is really strong, and the, the U count had gotten a little wonky, so the, uh, the state of New Mexico had issued a bunch of sheep tags. Mm-hmm. And so we had, I think there were four U's knocked down in a week we were up there, and one of the guys, a really nice guy who was camping right next to us, had been working that farther north valley at the very top of it looking for sheep, and had, he'd told us about this bull bugling up there before we'd even heard him up there. And he told us the night before Cable's hunt, last night of the hunt, that that bull now had 10 cows. And I was like, hey, man, if there's a bull with 10 cows in here, there's got to be satellite bulls that are anxious um, for for a chance to, to hook up with a girl. So, you know, let's go that way. Maybe we're going to get luckier than we have been. And you were on board with it. And so we set up a cold call sequence on the sweetest spot I could imagine from where I was sitting because I got up 
on the drop-off down to the bench where I was overlooking you. We had a perfect, strong, cold morning downhill thermal. Put you downwind to me. I could see like 80 yards out in front of me, uh, like 180 degrees around. And started calling. <clears throat> One of the things that uh, I think makes us a, decent, a good team is uh, I think I hear better than you do. <laughs> But, yeah, uh, I used to I, not, I used I, to shoot a lot of guns without ear protection when I was young and dumb. So maybe it might be something. <laughs> something has impacted that and to the point where there were times where I'd, you know, you can hear a bu- you can think you hear a bugle and it's just your ears ringing. But I was questioning my own sanity. Like you didn't hear that, really? You didn't hear that? <laughs> but anyway, I, I got set up there and I was working cow calls and I think I got that bull to bugle maybe five times. Um, well, you heard him, but you thought it was only like two, which actually worked out great. I'm going to back up for a second. There were so many things from the moment we got up that morning, dude, that could have derailed our success. So you started getting towards the end of the week where you'd say, hey, you know, I'm going to take off. You'll catch up to me. So I was, like, lacing up my boots and you know, taking care of my morning business, and, and you took off. Oh, and I this is because I've got these up. blisters. I mean, that was – Right. And, right, I, and, right, yeah, and when, in the afternoons, I'd say, hey, going back to camp, I'll see you in, like, 30 minutes or an hour, whenever I get there, because I just – I was saying Philippians 4.13 almost every step sometimes. Just Right. I, yeah. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because, geez, at some points I was just like, I, I just... Oh, you were hurt. Yeah. I don't know if I can take another step, Lord. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, so so you take off that morning. You know, this is, again, before we got busted by the first group and everything. And, and I leave camp and I'm, it's still dark. I've got my headlamp and I've got that nagging feeling I forgot something. Well, I get 200 yards up the trail heading out of the lake basin and realized I left the bugle tube. And I had the thought, man, they haven't hardly been bugling to me. I'm just going to cow call. No, oh dude, you better go back and get that. Yeah, how tragic would that have been, dude? So I doubled back, and I literally ran back downhill, um, grabbed my bugle tube, started heading out again. Then, because that lake area has a number of campsites, I end up not on the main trail, but on like a trail that went to a fire pit, and end up just having to bushwhack straight uphill for a bit, and then I there's a flat point before you get to the saddle and drop into the valley. I ran 200 yards across that. I caught back up with you at the top of the valley, but, um, you know. I was like, where is Chisholm? I, I, yeah, like, I was way behind. caught up to me you, by you were a mile ahead of me. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, again, thankfully it was, you know, thankfully I didn't just bail on the bugle and went and got it because when we got into that timber, we started making those calls. I got a few responses to the cow calls, but I was getting really obvious and quick responses to the bugle. Well, I was ready to sit that, that spot, you know, for the full 45 minutes that's recommended. You know, there was a couple of the bugles going off, too, but there was one that was the closest. And he was, again, sort of to my left, mm-hmm. side hill from us. And um, Cable gives up on the set, pulls his arrow out of his, you know, unknocks his arrow, puts it in his quiver. I see him doing it. And I'm like, that's cool. I thought maybe I could work that bull to us. He hadn't moved yet, but... I was like, no, we're going to go his direction. We're going to go make a move this morning and make this happen because I know there's a bull over there. So I go down there, and Cable's still talking about, man, we should have camped down low, this and that. And I looked at him and said, dude. It's easy to get in that funk up there, man. You're just beating yeah. yourself up. I was like, I just looked at him in the eye, and I was like, man, that doesn't matter now. There's a bull over there. Let's go kill him. And he said, yep, let's do it. Well, he's pretty much directly side hill from us, which means the wind is ripping between us. So we look at the situation. We're at the start of this bench. I said, let's get down to the bottom of this bench. We'll hook around downwind of him. And, you know, we'll just get as close as we can and see what happens. I, you know, I, 
all again, I go back to all these podcasts and stuff like the Meat Eater guys, Renilla and Giannis Patelis and those guys, they'll say like, we just try to get close to elk and then let something happen. So that was kind of the only plan I had. Like, let's go that way and see what happens. And so as we worked to him, I was trying a cow call here and a bugle there, and he was only replying to the bugle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was definitely doing it. And with each 20, 30 yards we went, that he's somewhere to my left became more and more like, all right, he's between nine and 11. Now he's, no, now he's like right there, you know. My my uh my pulse is picking up at this point to to where I ditch my pack and I ditch my quiver and say here GPS this because at this point I'm like oh, I, I this is this, this might actually happen. <laughs> We're closing in on a bull and he's clearly not moving. With each ten yards we go, we've got a better and better just direct beat on where he is, which means he's standing his ground. He's vocal. There's other bugles going on too, so like you get in the feeling. We finally hit the right day. There's bugles going downhill of us. There's bugles past this bull. You know, there was a lot. It's like the mountain eruption with bulls that we've been looking it, for. Earlier in the week, Chisholm's like, well, yeah. we'd see all this crap, and we see all this sign. Now all we need is living, breathing elk. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so we're heading that way, and um, we get to where I, I think I was probably 60 to 70 yards from him. Um, he, if he's looking straight downhill, I'm off to his like two or three o'clock, which which means I'm actually not even downwind to him. Certainly no threat of him winding me. And so we, so cable moves up and gets pretty much straight below him, thirty yards up from me, and, and we start sort of going at it. And I, I mean, I, you you take it from here because yeah, so it's kind of crazy because neither Chisholm nor I have this vast elk hunting experience. But that being said, we've we've done this and we've taken what we've known what we've learned on this hunt and uh, all the things that we've absorbed from other outlets. And uh, and then, you know, on some level, when you spend the majority of your free time hunting or fishing, uh, you, you, you become a good woodsman. And so we take all this stuff and just say, all right, let's go kill this bull. I don't know how Chisholm did this, because uh, the last time I saw him blow a call, an elk call, it was nothing like what happened that morning. But it was like every time he bugled, the elk bugled back, and then I could just see his confidence growing. I'm watching him call. And it was just, I, I don't even know how to, to describe it. This uh, this bull was so wound up, and every time he'd bugle, Chisholm would try to cut him off. And all I was doing was pissing him off more. <laughs> but here's the thing is the bull wasn't the bull was going to stand his ground because we were going into his bedroom and he hadn't made up his mind that he was going to come towards us at one point in time and, and Chisholm even said I knew we were going to kill this bull when he did this and it was he made these three just whoa whoa just these chuckles that uh, people might not understand if they haven't spent a lot of time in the elk woods that these animals make a lot of different noises and that was one that I had not heard from up close and personal I don't think you had either Chisholm Mm-mm. No, I don't think. I mean, I think maybe like I, I've watched videos and I don't see ago. these animals doing that. You know, not as a standalone sound like that. That was the really like I've heard them chuckle at the end of a bugle. Oh right? sure, maybe even a really up and down bugle where they're like, wow, yeah. But this was, and I'll go into a little bit of, you know, of how I structured the whole setup. But you know, the, the Corey Jacobson's a twelve-time world elk calling champion, right? And his playbook is locator bugle, pinpoint an elk, get within 150 yards of him, introduce cow calls, get him to respond to a cow call, and then cut him off with a bugle, and he will come the 
fight you to get the cow. That's basically how that works, right? And so we got up close. I knew exactly where he was, although I couldn't see him. I just he was pinpointed. I was sixty to eighty yards uphill from me, and and um, he was responding to my bugles, but not my cow calls. Well, I still felt the need to follow the sequence, right? So I I threw a cow call out there. I lost cow call, which is supposed to instigate a response, and it was quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not cool. Did I, you know, because I hadn't cow, cow called in the last five minutes at that point, and it would have been very several yards back the last time I tried it. Yeah. So I turn over my shoulder and I throw a bugle back the way we came from, and he's still quiet. I'm like, dang it, now he's not even replying to my bugles. What have we done? And we both had the same thought. Oh no, he's gone. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, it's probably twenty seconds went by. It felt like twenty minutes, and that animal made that sound you're talking about, where he went. Hoof, hoof, hoof. No bugle at the front, no no high pitch, nothing, just this deep guttural woofing sound where it was like he took his chest like a drum and just thumped it at us. Just boom. And I I swear I may be making this up, but I felt the concussion of it. Like it was vibrating through the force. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like like you said, that's when I realized uh, that's when I was like, we're, we're gonna get a shot at this bull. That might have been so when mad. you said go kill him, you know? It was right after that for sure. Like I think, so right after, as I recall it, it was right after he made that sound. I think I probably bugled. The next thing you know, he starts raking a tree. Uh, and the cool thing was when he started raking that tree, I was finally able to pinpoint him because I saw the tree he was hitting on and the canopy moving. And I could see the elk at and, this point. Uh, yeah, and, and Cable can see it. And so I grab the first stick I can find, which is this dinky little, like, nine-inch stick, and just start, like, a spaz, just beating the heck out of the tree I'm behind. And, <laughs> But it was working, you know, and there were, there were two thoughts in my mind the whole time. One was, and this is all from things I've listened to and heard, do what the animals are doing. And, um, you know, it was kind of funny because on our way in, we ran across a, an elk hunter who had been in with his buddy, and he was like, you know, we didn't do a lot of calling because the animals weren't calling. We we're just trying to do what they do. And they had actually gotten a shot opportunity. So I'm between that and the podcast and the different guys I've listened to, it was like, all right, he's raking a tree. I'm going to rake a tree. He's, he's chuckling at me. I felt confident in my bugle. The diaphragm calls that I bought from Native by Carlton back in April at the BHA Rendezvous, the first time I ever put them in my mouth, I was like, wow, I can blow these. It was not a challenge at all. Hardly took any air at all. I could get lots, three, four, five different tones out of them. So that wasn't an issue, but I've tried chuckling before, and when you're in the backyard just making your own sounds, you don't know how they sound to somebody else, right? But by God, he's chuckling, so I'm going to chuckle. And, uh, and then the second thing I would think as it kept working, like you said, and my confidence kept coming on and coming on, and you know, I'm at a point where I'm like... I, 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 I told you afterwards, I said, when did you learn how to chuckle? <laughs> yeah, You're like, oh, five right. minutes I mean, ago? <laughs> yeah, I had tried it, but I didn't know how it sounded. And so, but the, so the second thing these guys all say, whoever it is, is put emotion into the calls. When you're trying to rile a bull up to the point where he you know, is willing to face death, from a tine or a broadhead, it's all about emotion. And so he was clearly, even early on when he was just bugling back and forth at me, I might do an easy bugle. He was coming in with these like, and then he did that wicked chuckle. And then he was doing that up and down bugle with the chuckles and the tree raking. And so it was there was a lot of testosterone in the woods that morning from both the elk and Chisholm. I mean, it was flowing. It was like <laughs> I was, it was yeah, awesome. I was fired up, and I, I started putting like voice into my calls at the front end, at the back end, with the chuckles, and um, yeah. At one point, I looked at you, and uh, I was I knew he was not backing off of us, 
but I wasn't convinced I was going to get him to move. So it was, I looked at cable and I had like just the most intense look on my face. I could. And I said, dude, go get that ball. Like it, you know, I, 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 I scream whispered at him. Go get it. Yeah. We're and probably like 30 yards it. apart and I could just see, yeah. I mean, in motion, I was like, Oh, I, I guess I gotta go. I gotta make a move now. He's, he's done what he can do. And I got to close yeah. some distance here. Yeah. I mean, we, we had a, an obvious confrontation. That bull wasn't backing down. You were directly down one of them. So my thought was, put a move on him, make it happen. Because I I don't know if I can do anything more than just hold him here. Yeah, and so, I told you yeah, afterwards, but, I, and I, it might be the same for every hunter in in every on every hunt. That was a, that is the scariest moment once you can see the animal, and you decide I've got to get closer. I've got to I've got to close the distance, and then it's it's that fear of blowing the animal out of there. If, if he sees you, that's church, you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it goes right back to that notion of a team. It's real easy for me to say, not the one holding the bow and the rangefinder and the, you know, with the the dedicated shooting day. Hey, go get the bull, right? Like, <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm positive that if I had been pinned down where you were, it would have taken the same. Like, look no, from you me call him into me. Bring like, him over All right, here. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, right. It, 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 it's it's yeah, fear is probably the wrong word. It's just like the last thing you want to do is make a bad move and screw it up when, you know, all the bulls we'd ever killed so far had always been, they came right to us. Mm-hmm. So it's, well, not this day, today, you've got to go to it. And so, yeah, I mean, you made your move. <laughs> you got your, you got your five, 10, 200 pounds behind a six inch diameter tree. <laughs> that was the only tree there. And and now I can yeah. see, you know, I can see the elk at point uh, when I stick my head out on the right side of the tree, I can see his rear end. When I stick it out on the other side, I can, you know, see his antlers. Try not to see his eyes. I mean, that was my goal because I didn't want him to see me. Right. Um, and uh, whew, I mean, I was like, huh. and he was probably forty yards away. Well, again, I didn't have a clear shot. I could just kind of see body parts depending on which way I leaned. And then uh, that's when, you know, probably probably was in all of this feels like it took thirty minutes, but in reality, in real time, we we talked. It was probably like eight minutes long. You know, uh, that's what I, yeah, maybe ten. But uh, uh, the 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 thing I've said um, for for about the last year or two, you know, anytime I'm like advocating hunting to someone is that there's nothing in my life that makes me feel more switched on. I, I, I do a lot of I, some of the podcasts I listen to that aren't hunting related necessarily talk a lot about like consciousness and like presenceness, presence and you know meditation and some of those sorts of concepts. And nothing in the world makes me feel more absolutely in the moment. And that's why eight minutes can feel like 30 minutes, right? Because every second you're 100% engaged in the entire physical environment around you, right? The Your cool senses thing was, are heightened to the max. Yeah. Everything. So, so you make that move and I bugled to cover you 20 minutes later while we're getting ready to start butchering this thing. You're like, man, that was so cool how you bugled right when I moved to cover me. Like you were, you know, borderline petrified to make that move, but even still you were so cognizant of what was going on as you made it that you knew and heard me make that cover move for you. You know, like just everything we were in the flow state that it takes to be successful in that moment. Both, Mm -hmm. you know, do you have the killer instinct to go get it done or do you, are you going to sit there petrified, worried that you're going to blow the animal out of there? And I think, and I think that probably was the same way the native Americans felt uh, throughout humankind. It's like, you've gotten this close to an animal like you, you, you said, are you a killer, killer or are you not? You know, <laughs> that's right. What are you here to do, man? 
you you know, especially on your last day, you know, it, it's easy to to back down from that moment, to wait it out, to to hope the animal's going to come to you on day one. But man, certainly by day five, your third day of hunting, which was your last day of hunting, it's to me, it's um, it's push them to the middle of the table and and go get it time, you know. And so you moved up, and I covered you with that bugle. Um, I'm not exactly sure how long it was from there. It wasn't long, probably wasn't even a minute. I don't exactly know what sound was made or what caused it, but, um, you know, you moved up 15, 20 yards. He was in bow range at that point, but he didn't have a shot. And finally, the bull was just aggravated enough that he started working straight down to you. And, um, and I was behind a, let's just say a less than adequate tree for my stature. (laughs) Yeah, you know, as you, I was just thinking as you were saying that, like, I, I wondered to this day, is it possible that bull saw you move and was actually heading to you? Because he was going basically straight downwind. Now, he was either, to me, he was doing one of two things. He was either heading downwind so that he could get below me, yeah, where the sound, where the sound was coming from. Um, maybe that was the only path he had out of there. Or did he see you move? And in this blind rage that we had him in, you know, he was going to come kick your butt. I don't, I don't know, but he headed right at you. And yeah. there was a fi- finally, so I saw his antlers moving away from the tree that had been shaking. Yeah, and I'd been watching was, him was, for a good three or four minutes, you know, uh, right from my vantage point. So I, I didn't know how big he was. I knew he was an ice bull. Yeah, well, I, you know, all I see is antlers. That's the first time I'd seen the animal himself. All I had seen so far had been the tree that he was whacking on and. He starts closing the gap on you, and, you know, every elk steps, what, probably two yards or something like that? Oh, my so God, yeah. It only takes four or five steps, and he's inside 20 on you, and and you're standing behind your six-inch tree. No, I'm sitting. I'm, and, ne- I'm on my knees, yeah. Okay, kneeling behind yeah. your six-inch tree, and you, haven't even, you still haven't drawn your bow, and I'm literally, I'm screaming at you again, whisper screaming, draw your <laughs> blanking bow, man, draw your bow, draw your bow. <laughs> Because that's, I mean, for anybody who's ever tried it or anybody who's thinking about trying it, man, whether you're sitting still trying to kill a whitetail, turkeys, elk, it drawing the bow is the moment of truth. And that's why, like, you know, the fact that we got meat on the ground, I look back to that cow that I lost and I think, or didn't, didn't lose that cow that I didn't get a shot at. And I, yeah. I, got to, I got to full draw on an animal that didn't know I was there that was 12 to 15 yards away. That animal was all but dead, but for having stopped behind a tree. So, you know, this is like the critical moment. And all I can do is sit back and like beg you, send you, you know, mental ESP to say, draw your bow, draw your bow, do it now, do it now. Yeah. But, and I saw you ease it back and the bull was still coming. I don't know exactly when he stopped, but he stopped in front of you. I mean, y'all look from where I'm standing close enough to kiss each other. Oh, yeah. And then I, I so- hear the shot and... From my yeah, from my vantage point, uh, I knew he was coming. I didn't want him to see my face, you know? I figured if he yeah. can't see my eyes, all he sees is just a blob in the forest, you know? Right. That's being still. I'm trying to be still. Obviously, I'm hiding behind this this pine tree that's about, you know, half the diameter of me. Uh, but so I, I knew he was coming towards me, and so I got back behind there, hit my face. And at this point, I'm like, I, I have to look and see where he is so I know when to draw. And I peek out around the left side. And there's an elk just, this bull is just looking at me, just eyeballing me from, I mean, 15 yards away. So immediately I get duck back behind the tree, draw my bow, come out on the right side, and he's just standing there, just straight on shot. 
And never, you know, you and I had talked about this. Would you shoot an elk in the chest? Well, I mean, I, I knew people have done it. I've seen videos where the animals have died quickly, and at 15 yards, I was like, there's no way I'm not taking this shot. And so I let it rip and, you know, uh, saw the arrow hit, heard a good thwack, and, and then he he ran about 10 yards, and then he started slowly walking. And at that, at that point, I could just see blood just pouring out of the entry wound. And I knew he was probably going to die. But, like, I summoned you to come over there, and I, and I told you, I was like, I, I hit him in the chest. It was a little low, maybe even a little right. Uh, but I saw a bunch of blood, and you're like, oh, he's he's dead, man. There's no doubt. And then we heard him crash. <laughs> yeah, yeah. From where I was sitting, I guess a couple of things, and then and then back to you know that that first immediate aftermath. One thing I saw as you drew your bow, which I think your listeners should really consider, is as guys we have a tendency. Um, I would assume it's more so with the guy hunters listening to you than maybe the lady hunters, but we always want to show how strong we are, right? And so there's. You can be overbowed, and by overbowed I mean if it takes everything you've got to draw your bow, that might be okay if you're in a tree stand and you've got a moment where you can draw your bow where a whitetail is not looking at you because you're blocked. But when you're facing an animal, deer, elk, I don't care what it is, if you have to like grunt to get your bow back, that's way too much. And so at 67 pounds, with the strongest cables gotten over the last couple years like he drew that bow smoothly and that's one of the things about elite that they're known for yeah oh absolutely super smooth draw like you drew that bow it looked like effortlessly slowly and came to full draw and settled without any herky-jerky if you'd had to like rip that thing and then dumped into a valley and snapped back into the into the wall i don't you know you might have busted that elk out of there but it was this like really gradual nugent talks about it all the time you know he he doesn't he shoots like 50 to 55 pounds i think and Mm -hmm. He's like, you know why I do that? Because I can do that while an animal's looking at me and then slip an arrow through the, you know, <laughs> double lung them and, and, and it's over. And so that was important. Um, you let it go. And at this point, it, you know, it takes off. And I'm, I'm watching you like bob and weave trying to keep an eye. I could tell you were watching the animal and I couldn't see it at all moving away from you. And so I didn't want to move to you for fear of uh, making a noise that might bust him into a run. I mean, this felt like, again, it went on for a minute. It was probably 20 seconds of you following the animal, and, and I'm going, please turn around and tell me something. Please, <laughs> What's going on? And you look over at me, and you give me a thumbs up, and I'm like, cool, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, because you immediately look back to the elk, and you're still looking around, and so you look back over me again, and you wave me over. I go running over there, and I actually heard him crash, like, right when I got to you. Before you'd even told me what you'd seen, I heard a crash. And I go, did you hear that? And you were like, did you hear him crash? And I was like, I heard a crash. But you never know, is that the bull falling, or is that the bull, like, steadying himself and taking off and maybe hitting his antlers on a, some on a, you know, some, some brush or whatever? Yeah. Um, but then when you told me... I was a little emotional at this point, trying to keep it together oh. after everything we'd been through over the course of the week. With the weather and the blisters, hell, you burned your arm on the pipe in the in the <laughs> in the tent. I mean, the yeah. TP, which we didn't even talk about. Uh, you know, I was I, I can't say I've ever teared up when I've shot an animal, and I've shot a lot of animals, uh, but that, this was the first time it really was um, just probably more spiritual than it ever had been as far as that journey. Uh, everything we invested over the course of twelve months to get to this point all hit me in that you know that one moment. 
I can say for sure I've never teared up when someone else shot an animal, and that definitely happened to that point. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I had a moment, you know, you, you told me it was, a, it was a chest shot. It might have been a little low, but as he walked away, you saw blood pouring. As soon as you said you saw blood pouring out of his chest, and I knew I'd heard a crash, I was like, that bull's dead. Let's give him 15 minutes, but he's dead, and 20, whatever it was. And I walked back to get your pack, and uh, and I had already looked up to God twice, three times, and said, thank you. I did it right before I moved to you. But I literally like had a moment where I just like laid down for a second and just had to collect myself because, yeah, I mean, it, it was the most intense culmination of a super intense, exhausting week you could have imagined. Um, you know, it, it would have been awesome to have dropped a 60-yard bomb from the top of the of the valley at an elk that was just feeding in grass in the wide open, but <laughs> this was not that, dude. We were in this guy's bedroom riled him to a, an absolute fury. He came stomping down to kick somebody's butt and instead caught an arrow in the chest. And it was, you know, with feet wrecked <laughs> like they were and being cold and wet. And, it, you know, it was, that was the only way to end an intense week was with an intense encounter. And yeah, I mean, you were like, after 20 minutes, I think you said, you think we can check out first blood? And I was like, yeah, dude, let's go check it out. Cause I, I was, 99% sure that bull was about 80 yards from us. And, uh, uh, yeah, it was more like 50 because we checked out the first blood and I couldn't even make out what was actually first blood. Cause there was just blood everywhere. Like it was, it's not, it wasn't like a drop here in the line. It was sprayed <laughs> massive. Like you wouldn't have been able to say definitively, like he went this way. Cause it was like cast out like <laughs> 50 blood spots in a three yard radius, you know? And, Oh yeah, I'm filming it as I'm walking behind you, and you're like, I think we can skip on 30 feet or so because I can see that log covered with blood up there. And before we even got to that log, I was like, there he is, dude. And you were like, what? Where is he? Do I need to shoot another arrow? And I was like, no, he's dead. Dead <laughs> as a doornail. 11 o'clock, right there. Like, <laughs> oh. I, think, I think he went 45, 50 yards tops, and it, the whole thing had taken a minute. You know, I, for sure the sound I heard was him falling down, and you know, it had been. It might not even have been a full 60 seconds from <laughs> when you let the arrow go, but it destroyed them. And I told you afterward, you know, some of the, the guys I like, the, the born and raised outdoors crew, they, they've been making film DVDs and now YouTube videos since like the early two thousands, mostly in Oregon. And they'll tell you, cause Oregon's timber, like what we were hunting, mm -hmm. thick rainforest type timber. They say that seven sixty 60 to 70% of their shots. They said the vast majority of every bow kill they've ever captured has been a frontal shot because it's just the nature of, that type of terrain it's the nature of calling the animal to you he's going to come in looking at you and so yeah they work don't be afraid of them i wouldn't do it on a whitetail um, not even at 10 yards because those neo matrix <laughs> yeah, I mean, are going to move yeah but, you know the elk just take it the elk didn't on all be honest with you he didn't ever move when i when i let the arrow go i mean he just stood there like you said he just took it now yeah. if he just seen a sudden movement or something you know uh yeah, of course he would have busted out of there, but uh, unlike a whitetail, they they just don't have that uh, cat-like reflex. Reflex, and uh, I highly recommend it. I mean, I, you you never know until you actually do it. Uh, the frontal shot and those viper tricks just absolutely devastated him. Uh, yeah, and then the uh, and then it was back to work again. <laughs> so I'm sure we each said a prayer of thanks, and then uh, it was like. OS, now look at this thing. We have to quarter up and get out of here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know me. That's like, that's absolutely my favorite. Oh, sure. 
but it's the good pain. Them, it's the good, yeah, the good misery. Not the move, not the moving it, but the quartering it up part. I like that part. But mm-hmm. oh yeah, yeah Chisholm loves to, to get his hands in, in all up in that elk, and uh, I like to butcher too, but I'm not nearly as efficient. So uh, basically, let you quarter him up, and I'm you know kind of putting the meat in the bags and getting it ready to haul, and I think shot him at eight thirty Chisholm, and 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 by let's see, I think we had him quartered up by like two uh to to how you know uh well we then we deboned him so we quartered him to debone right him. yeah and it I took mean, a long he was time probably quarter, yeah it, we probably had him quartered in the first hour and a half but then we sure. pulled the meat back out and deboned it because we realized we weren't going to get uh anybody to help we we get we're eight miles in so we don't we're not bad enough to pack an elk eight miles three trips we had horses come get him we just had to move him a half a mile to a trail which is still a heck of a <laughs> Heck of a chore, no doubt. But well, the first load weighed 100 out, pounds, dude. It. I mean, the hindquarter loads definitely weighed 100 pounds. <laughs> I I think so. You know, I I put that video on Instagram where we talked about the weight, and I'm waiting for somebody to chime in and say, "There's no way that y'all did four trips and the two of them were 100 pounds." I, I know that we had full hindquarters, a whole bunch of neck trimmings, um, some other just you know. You had the whole neck in one of them. Right, the actual neck itself in one of them, but then we took the bones out, and each, you know, the femur bone on this thing weighed probably 10, you know, and so my, my as I understand it, general rule of thumb is a hindquarter weighs 70 to 80 deboned. We'll keep the bone in there, you're at 80 to 90, and then some extra bits here and there that we carved off. I, I think the first loads were 100, the second loads were probably 60, which would put us, well, that would put us at 300 pounds out. Again, we were taking out bones. I think that's a probably a fair number. He was a full-grown elk. Mm-hmm. He was probably, you know, four and a half to five, probably five and a half year old would be my guess. So you know, mature-ish. Yeah, he, was a, that, he was a know, five by five, by the way. We never did even mention right. that. So uh, nice yeah. public nice land five by five bull, and yeah. uh, we took the heart. You took part of the liver. I mean, we did. The only thing that we didn't get out of there that some people try to get out, and and, I, and we would have if we had access to a horse to get all the way back in there is the rib cage. Everything else we took. I mean and we even yeah, took, but we the, took the flanks off. We, yeah. We oh yeah. Carved the flanks off that. So yeah. yeah. So we have some fajitas out of that. Um but yeah and and so we finally get it to the trail and this is where this is kind of the only <laughs> low point of that day. Uh is we had taken it to the trail and, you know, saved the coordinates to send to the the, the Wrangler to come in there to, the next day to get it. And we're hiking out that night, going back to camp, and we come to a bunch of laydowns, like where the trail is impassable. The Forest Service has not been in there in at least a couple years. And we're not talking about like two laydowns. We're talking like 50. Like it would have taken a day with a chainsaw to to make it to where the horses could have got. So we look at each other, and it's like, well, we know what has to happen. The meat has to move. We can't stay there. Horses can't get to it. They can't come from below, and they can't come from above. Because they're the same situation. We put it in between two, like, just epic laydown scenarios. And uh, you said, screw it, we'll just deal with it tomorrow. And I was just like, okay, my feet are about at their breaking point now. And we get back to camp. And then uh, that's kind of you uh you stepped up and said, listen, tomorrow morning I will go move all the meat. And it was only two-tenths of a mile, but... You know, that's still, you have to hike over there two and a half miles to get there. And then you have to move 
what, four or five loads, two-tenths of a mile. It uh, wasn't an easy job for one person. So I broke down camp, and, and you went and did that, and uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that because I ended up having to ride a horse out of the mountains because I just couldn't walk anymore. You know, it's going to sound funny, but it really was my pleasure in large part because all day Saturday I was struggling with the thought of I didn't. I had one more day to hunt, and that was Sunday morning. Um, I've told you since day one, like I got to be out of the mountains Sunday evening because I got to be traveling back on Monday so I can be, you know, I told my wife I'd be home Monday night. I told my employer I'd be home, be at work Tuesday morning. So, you know, but I I thought, well, we can hunt till like eight or eight, eight 30 Sunday morning. If we get a bull, just whack them and stack them. And, you know, we'll have the horses in at about two o'clock in the afternoon or whatever. And we'll show them where, you know, well, after packing your bull till six 30 at night, I'm going, boy, we're really, this is a tall order to get out there, hunt in the morning, possibly knock one down, get him to a point on a trail where a horse can get to him, uh, and get camp packed somehow so that we're ready to go when the, when the horses get there. I'm like, you know, but at the same, so I'm thinking, is this even possible? At the same time, how do I just give up on a day of hunting? Well, the challenge, the mental and physical grind is as much a part of why I love this particular type of hunt as the you know the harvest is the is the meat as anything else right like all of these things are equal contributing factors to me and i mm-hmm. i want it to be hard i want it to feel like i earned it and i want to feel like i was stretched to my physical and mental capacity during the course of the hunt so mentally and physically as, weak men do not go into the mountains and, and certainly not find success i mean it just ain't gonna happen right yeah exactly and so you know all day Saturday as we were butchering and, and moving meat, I'm thinking, man, is this, am I really going to be able to pull this off hunting again tomorrow? And when we went 30 miles from, 30 miles, 30 yards from that meat and found those laydowns, I kind of lost it for a second. <laughs> I was extremely frustrated. Um, I might have cussed loudly in the woods, which you're never supposed to do. But uh, that's when I realized, you know what, man, the responsible thing to do on Sunday is to, you know, Go home right now, rest, not try, not hurt ourselves hauling this meat two-tenths of a mile up in the dark. Get up in the morning, break camp, move the meat, get it ready for the horses, and, and call it a day. We've already agreed that whatever we get, we're splitting 50-50, and half an elk is enough elk meat for this year. Um, you know, No need to be selfish or overzealous and try to kill another one. The responsible thing I decided to do was to get us ready to get out of there and you were probably 30 minutes behind me getting back to camp, and you were like, dude, my feet are wrecked. And the cool, so I was like, perfect. My last challenge of this hunt is going to go to, going to be to go move a bull by myself. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I booked it out of there. I guess I'll probably pat myself on the back for a minute, but a lot of this being physical conditioning, we'd already been at it for six days. This was day seven, really. For me. Oh, yeah. Packing in, packing in on Monday and out on Sunday, right? So, so it's about, it took me 40 minutes to get to the meet, which I estimated to be. It was right at half, two and a half miles. Two, you think it was that far? Well, okay. Yeah. So two, two, maybe two and a half. I was hoofing it, but it was mostly downhill. I get to it. I got five loads to do. I do four meat loads and then your head. And uh, each of those is two tenths uphill and then walking empty two tenths back down. So I, I moved an elk a mile, basically, or you know, parts of an elk a mile. And I was back at camp at 1240. So the whole process to get to him, move him, and get back took me four hours and 10 or 15 minutes. 
definitely had my pack. I went eight miles out. So I think I did a 14 plus mile day, including moving an elk and beach all down the mountain by like an hour. Oh yeah. Uh, and that was, you know, three years ago, two, two, two years ago, three seasons ago, my old man and I went to the San Juans in Colorado and he ended up getting acute altitude sickness, pulmonary edema. And we had to hit, we had to fly him out a chopper and, uh, he had wanted me to take the chopper back down when they came back for our gear. And I was like, man, I hadn't, we had, it was a terrible hunt. We didn't see anything. The pine beetles had wrecked the forest. There was no dark timber anywhere. And on that hunt, when those guys came back and they were saying, your dad wants us to take you out. I was like, I'm walking out because right. I didn't get anything that I wanted out of this hunt. Um, but we were 15 miles in and I was like, I've never been on a 15 mile hike. I'm walking out of here. Uh, so similar to that, that was sort of, you know, that was the, the, the trophy for that hunting season was to get to walk out of a 15 mile, uh, hole up in the, in the wilderness. So this one was, we got, I got, you know, got to take part in killing your bull, got to call him and then still got to be sort of the, you were such a trooper all week long, dude. There was no quit, no quit, no quit. Um, I told you last year. When we killed those two bulls uh, at that that ranch, I killed mine, and then I let you hunt that night and didn't come with y'all, which meant I wasn't there to help you pack it out. So that's eaten on me for a year. That I <laughs> I decided to watch the Cowboys instead of help you guys pack your bull, and uh, I got a chance to repay to make amends for that when you needed when you needed the help because your feet are wrecked. I was like, I got this, and so yeah. Sandals are the greatest cherry on the right top. Now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Well, man, it was uh, it was one to remember. Definitely the most intense uh, from just let's just say the twenty minutes of interacting with that bull to the point where we killed him. That was the most intense hunt I've been on to shoot an animal at fifteen yards to see you growing in confidence every time you you put your lips to the bugle tube. Um, it was incredible, and then you combine that with uh, the highs and lows of the week some of the funny things that were said that that i kind of just made mental notes of uh at one point chisholm said <laughs> he goes um you can get them to bugle when it's bugling time and i, I mean, that cracked me up because like yeah but you know and then you're like but they don't have watches so how do they know when bugling time and it's just like little things like that well, keep you going uh yeah i mean on that the crazy thing was that was the day where we worked that bull that evening for you, where he had been 250, 300 yards across a meadow from us on a hillside all day long. We had thrown calls out periodically, never got a response, but then all of a sudden he starts screaming, and every time we called, he screamed back. It yeah. Like, there is definitely a bugling time. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. You just got to be ready to roll whenever that kicks on, yeah. Uh, also, so I'm a little more, I would say, crass, maybe not as PC as Chisholm, sometimes and i'll say things like man i can't wait to get back and have sex with my wife and you know you think about these things on the mountain and chisholm's like uh no i want to stay here and hunt elk forever <laughs> because he knew not yeah because he knows that uh I, i'll give him a hard time sometimes he probably thinks about his family feels a little more guilty than than i do and so i was like whoa that's that's what i'm talking about chisholm <laughs> Yeah, but I was lying. I wanted to go home and make love to my wife too. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, also, one that I said quite a few times, I need a, uh, a baby wipe pour bath and a shot of whiskey because at the end of every day, uh, I did not smell good, and I wanted a shot of whiskey. <laughs> yep. So that that uh, teepee, didn't, it smelled a little ripe by the end of the week. There's no doubt about that. So did my truck on the way home. <laughs> oh, God. Yes, indeed it did. The shower never felt so good, man. But uh, thanks for uh, being a part of what I would say was was certainly a hunt of a lifetime, dude. And I, I can't wait till we do it all over again next September. Absolutely, man. Um, I've said it several times uh, to you, to others, but um, that was that 30 minutes where we worked in on and ultimately killed that bull was the highlight of my life as a hunter. In my hunting life, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Not counting kid kids' births and all those important things, right? Like, eh, eh. Well, I don't we, care. Maybe we disagree who... on that, but oh. <laughs> 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 the PC thing to say is that the birth of my kids is definitely the most important. But, okay, well then we'll go with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, you know, you, you don't have to be the trigger man to, you know, that that's a team activity. Period. Ah, you, it's our bull. It's our bull, man. That's right. That's right. It's, it was our bull. It was everybody had a job to do. Everybody did their job. We used the term throughout the hunt several times that the stars need to align. And, you know, that was one of those mornings where it did. We had a fired up bull holding his ground, a good, strong thermal that was consistent, gave us an opportunity to put a move on him. And, uh, yeah, stars align and, and he's in my cooler as we speak. So, well, awesome. Let's heal up and hit the gym. We got work to do. Sounds good. 360-something days, and we're at it again. Right on, brother. Take care. All right, buddy. Talk to you later. All right. There he goes, our good buddy Chisholm Cook. You can follow him on uh, Instagram. He's at Devoted Archer if you want to check that out. Uh, Good times. No doubt about that. Uh, Truly a hunt for the ages. Uh, That segment of the show was brought to you by John X Safaris. If you're interested in joining me uh, next summer, 2019, on the trip of a lifetime, then shoot me an email. I believe the dates are going to be June 7th through the 15th. And uh, you can take up to eight hunters. I think I have four spots left. So if you want to be a part of that, uh, shoot me an email, Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com. Love to have you. Uh, unfortunately, just looking at the clock here, we got to go, got to get out of here. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoors show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. Rolling.